in Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the, the whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Art Stone, and with me as always is your co-host, Andy Hart. Hello, Art. Hello, Bunk Funkers. Welcome to another episode of Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. Oh, I, hello, Andy, and thank you for that that very uh, curt and straightforward um, direct response. Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast, delivering you the news you need at the speed <laughs> you need it. You sound like Steve Brule, a drunk Steve Brule. A drunk Steve Brule. Yeah, I sound okay. like I sound like a low functioning Steve Brule. <laughs> and my life has speaking followed of that. Low path. F- <laughs> speaking of low functioning Steve Brule, uh, today's topic uh, <laughs> in some ways feels like low functioning Steve Brule came up with a lot of the ideas. Am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's true. Um, uh, now, you bunk funkers, longtime listeners, you know this. You OG bunk funkers know this. That this week has been our birthday week. Thank you so much for all the gifts. Thank you so much. We love, love looking at those gifts. I mean, the way that they, you know, this is such funny gifts people are sending us. Yeah, the gifts have been. I love great. watching them. Such a yeah, such a incredible response to our birthday. A real outpouring of gifts. Yeah, I guess I guess I guess the technical term is a gif, but we like to call them gifs and you know, uh, if you we really GIF, have appreciated I, all those gifs. I, I don't I don't care for it, frankly. Yeah, I don't either. It's a gif. But um we no, we do a rep- everything anyone has said, all the nice niceties and whatever and 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 support and and whatnot that people have sent us. We really do appreciate it. It, it has been very fun. Um and we do, we do, we appreciate it on so many different levels. Yeah, we we appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, ultimately, though, it means nothing to us because <laughs> we are laser focused on the next episode, the next whole enchilada that we've got to deliver to you. Uh, we will not rest on our laurels. We struggle so much with accepting praise, bunk funkers. Um, <laughs> it really comes I mean, we're from not being people. accustomed to it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we cower in fear, and you know. Um, but uh, last week we covered um, a nine eleven conspiracy, essentially the big, the main overarching conspiracy of nine eleven that it was an inside job. But we did not talk about anything having to do with the buildings, right? But that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the buildings. 
Um, We're going to talk about buildings. Yeah. We're going to talk about airplanes. We're going to talk about fucking control, uh, controlled demolitions. We're going to talk about thermite. We're going to talk about fucking fuselages. And uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, the pilots and the hijack, all this stuff. So much building stuff. Missiles. We're going to be so sick of building codes. And you know what? If you're thinking about becoming an engineer, this episode is going to make you not want to become an engineer. Our commitment to you is to say the word fuselage no fewer than 13 <laughs> times during this episode. Um, that's that's the that's Randy right. pledge. That that is our pledge, and you know what? We're gonna we're gonna start a telethon, a fuselageathon, Fus- to uh, a fuselageathon to uh, to make sure that we get you those fuselage fuselages fuselages. Anyway, yeah, Andy, we're talking about this is part two of nine eleven. Yes, the buildings, right? Um, if you want to go ahead and get right to all that research, because you're going to have another hefty whole inch- listeners, if you might still be digesting last week's enchilada, you may well, still get ready. have residual indigestion from <laughs> last week's whole enchilada. Yeah, you might still be chugging Pepto-Bismol just trying to get down <laughs> last week's whole enchilada. But this week's whole enchilada, oh, baby, you're getting another heaping helping portion. We are like, we're like two adorable grandmas who keep telling you how skinny you are and how much you need to eat. Think of us as your abuelas. And <laughs> we made a whole platter of enchiladas, the whole enchiladas. And you're going right. to eat it whether you're hungry or not. <laughs> So go right ahead, look in the show notes. As always, there is a timestamp so you can jump right ahead to when the uh, research starts. You can jump right ahead to get yourself that whole enchilada on 9-11 Part 2, The Buildings. Uh, but first, Andy and I need to check in with one another because we got a little update on Mr. Bunker. Yes, uh, that's very true. Um, you know, um, for... For longtime listeners of the show, you'll know that uh, when um, this COVID-19 pandemic started, Mr. Bunker traveled to Wuhan in China and became infected with the virus. A purposeful act uh, to develop the antibodies uh, within his uh, immune system so that he could travel about the world freely while nobody else was doing it. Um, So he's been to a few places um, he's been even to the International Space Station. Um, I mean, that's not really a destination, so I don't know why he chose to do that in this period in his life. But hey, to each their own. Yeah. Um, and he's been keeping in touch with us by uh, sending us postcards um, of his destinations and giving us topics to talk about. Now, this is um, a unique week in that he did not need to give us a topic. We already had the topic. Um, yes, because obviously we did 9-11 part one and this is 9-11 part two electric boogaloo. And so he didn't need to send us a postcard uh, with a topic, but he did send us a postcard uh, to let us know where he is and what he's up to. Um, and this week, um, Mr. Bunker is at Google HQ. Uh, he's at the Google right. campus. He's at the Google campus uh, and he's there uh, allegedly, I guess, uh, according to what he says, um, he's he's Googling stuff. 
um, <laughs> at the Google campus. So um, I guess I guess we should explain a little more about like why he's why he's in California on the Google campus. Um, yeah. So Mr. Bunker obviously lives in a bunker and he's a secretive person. He doesn't trust the Internet. Uh, he doesn't log on to the Internet from the bunker because he's afraid people will find out where it is. So anytime he wants to go to a website, if he tries to visit a website, he has to physically visit the offices of the website and ask the people that work there um, for whatever he's trying to do on the website. So anytime he orders something from Amazon, he he drives to the Amazon HQ yep. and asks them for it. Um, anytime he wants to Google something, he goes to the Google campus, the Googleplex. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he saves up like a year's worth of Google searches and then we'll go to Google and do his Googling. Yeah. And um, there's an interesting passage in this, uh, in this postcard, um, which I'm not, I'm not totally on board with, to be honest, but He's talking about how crisp and clear uh, the Googling is and how much better the Google is when you get it straight from the source. He's Googling which, from the source. Right. Like he's <laughs> as close to the origination of the Google as you can be. And so somehow it's a more pure and refreshing search. I think he thinks a Google is like a spring, a spring water source. And he's like yeah. a like, water bottle like, company. Like so. I don't know that he understands the internet and how it works because it seems like he feels like there's like a fountain of Google at the Googleplex and like there's not a there's not a finite number of Googles. There's an right. infinite number of Googles. I don't think he I think he thinks that there's a only certain amount of Googles. <laughs> You've got to save up your Googles for the really important stuff. You don't yeah. want to waste them. <laughs> Like there's some spigot of internet search and Google can turn it on and off. And the further you are away from the spigot, the the worse it tastes. Like it one time, you breaks. know, I was in the bunker and he's, I think he caught me Googling Susan Sarandon, Susan Sarandon's IMDB. And he oh. was like, what the fuck are you doing? He slapped the keyboard. What are you doing? Wasting Googles on that kind of shit. <laughs> I said, oh, I want to know if that was Susan Sarandon in that movie. He's like, it's not. You can waste all the Googles. <laughs> Couldn't you just ask Jeeves? <laughs> He's always saying that. Like yeah, you're going to run out of that. Googles. And I guess I never kind of picked up on it. I just thought that was another one of his weird things. But now it makes sense. Yeah. Like I was Googling like, you know, how do I know if I ate my twin in the womb, things like that. And he's just gets so mad. He'll slap the keyboard right from out under you. Yeah, well, you and furthermore, you know, using the computer that he has down there in the bunker, it's it's so crusty. <laughs> I mean, everything yeah. in the bunker is kind of covered in like a fine crust. Yeah. <laughs> the computer, though, especially the crusty. The computer especially. <laughs> I don't want to. It's almost know. like the computer was breaded and deep fried. <laughs> the computer may or may not be made of phyllo dough. We aren't <laughs> certain. It's so crispy. 
It's so flaky, so crispy. If you I push mean, the buttery. keys too hard, it shatters. <laughs> this could also of- be why he's going to Google to Google. <laughs> and it's full of spinach and feta. <laughs> it's delicious. It has... But it's not effective. It has a spinach processor and a feta GPU. That's true. That's true. It's got some oregano RAM. <laughs> salt and pepper. You know, classic, yeah, classic easy stuff. You don't need to you don't need to splurge on salt and pepper. <laughs> My mouth waters every time I'm down there. Yeah. It's it's hard to get work done. <laughs> it's very tempting. I love pastry. He says he bought it from some guy called uh, Yuri Papadopoulos's Computer Warehouse. So I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with with Bunker. I just know that he 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 goes to Google to Google. Yeah, he he can only Google at the source. But that is that is what we learned about Bunker today. That's where he's at. He is uh, at the Google campus, which I guess is pretty empty because. What I read is that Google and a lot of these tech companies are just like, fuck it. Work from home until 2021. See if we give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, if you're lucky enough to work at one of those, you know, I guess not lucky, but also qualified enough to work at one of those places. um, I guess that is a perk that you get. Yeah. I mean, the picture that accompanied the postcard was him sleeping on one of the ping pong tables. (laughs) Not sure who took the photo. He obviously knows how to work the timer on his camera. Well, we hope. Because otherwise, Mr. B, that's not socially distant. Yeah. Well, that is uh, that is Mr. Bunker this week. Um, if you out there have seen Mr. Bunker or know of any of his whereabouts or what he's been up to, please let us know. You can email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com, tweet at us, or follow us on Instagram at mrbunkerpod. Um, Andy? For any, of, you, for any of you um, industrious uh, bunk funkers, also, if you'd like to put together some sort of an interactive map slash timeline of Mr. Bunker's travels, that's mm, great, too. That'd be cool. Like a Santa tracker, but for Mr. Bunker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, NORAD yes. tracks Santa every year. Hey, that kind of relates to today's topic. Wink. Well, <laughs> maybe last week's. But yes, yeah. this this week we're talking about the conspiracy of Santa Claus. <laughs> Um, Andy, how was your week in quarantine this week? Did you have a good week in quarantine this week? This was a good week, a fine week. Um, I have, I had no experiences, uh, I have nothing to share. Um, are you sure about that? Because I heard that you, you finally got a brand new mask. You'd kind of been reusing an old N95 that you had, um, from the from that time you got uh foot skin grafted onto your face mm-hmm, and um and you were in the hospital um but that was elective I heard surgery, that you got a new way, mask bunkers, nothing to worry about what was that that was an elective surgery elective surgery yeah nothing yeah. to worry about it wasn't you just like the way foot skin feels and you wanted your whole face to feel like a foot yeah the foot's very durable and the face is so soft uh i wanted a little <laughs> more protection your face needs more calluses. Yeah, and now it has them. You have bunions. You have face bunion. Yeah, they call me Paul Bunions. 
<laughs> but you got a new mask today, Andy, but you've actually been uh you've been wearing a Michael Myers mask around town. Is that mm-hmm. true? That's right. Uh it meets all the qualifications. Um it's uh completely sealed up on the front um so it it's it's great plus i look like jimmy carter <laughs> but you 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 do you didn't actually have to you don't actually have to go full michael myers i don't understand why you carry around a big knife and a wear a jumpsuit i it came with the mask it's attached to the mask oh uh, okay you put the the front of the mask is sewed into the jumpsuit Mm. You put the mask on your head and then you get in the jumpsuit. And it looks silly well, without the knife. I mean, duh. That's true. I mean, you don't want to look silly. No, I want to look safe. <laughs> well, if anything, Andy, it's definitely helping you with social distancing. Isn't that true? That's true. Uh, it sends a clear message to people that I'm taking this seriously. And they know that I do not want to get COVID-19. I don't want to die. Yeah. And that's the only reason. And I'll reason kill to make sure I don't die. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of... Uh, ah, fuck. I forgot the first thing you said. Anyway, today's Norad? topic and... <laughs> no. oh Today's topic, Andy, um, you know, it's, uh, how do we, how do we phrase this? (laughs) It is probably, probably the biggest, probably the, the main thing I think that people think about maybe when they think about, um, 9-11, 9-11 trutherism, um, the conspiracy behind 9-11, or just maybe even the word conspiracy in general. You know, I think um, the stuff involving the buildings on 9-11, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty accurate. You know, the last week we examined the false flag operation. Um, and this has there's some overlap between these two, yeah. um, because if you feel that there was a false flag operation in 9-11, you also might feel that. The government wanted to make sure that the towers collapsed, that there was maximum damage to the Pentagon uh, or that there was other stuff happening. Um, So, right. You know, this is in in some ways, some of these things we're going to talk about today are the underpinnings for support um, for a false flag hypothesis. Right. Uh, I mean, and and we'll talk about it in the episode, but um, yeah, it's it's maybe a little bit different format, but we'll we'll, we'll get into it. And um, I guess let's start it off. You know, let's kick it off right here, Andy. The uh, the end. <laughs> the oh god, it's the uh, it's what some people are calling um, the worst answer to Shark Week ever. This is this is the culmination of our nine eleven week here on. Um, <laughs> Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. This is uh, 9-11 Conspiracies Part 2, The Buildings, here on Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. 
Punk Funkers! Welcome to part two of our 9-11 series, The Buildings. In part one of our series, we gave a succinct and very brief... Just kidding, it wasn't that brief. Political and cultural history of relations between the Middle East and the Western powers and the U.S. involvement in the Middle East, as well as a history of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. There also was history of the Ottoman Empire, uh, as well as... <laughs> <laughs> the entire coverage of 9-11. Afterwards, we jumped into the main conspiracy theory behind 9-11, that it was an inside job or a false flag meant to engage us in a forever resource war in the Middle East. Like we said, very brief. I mean, just shy of like two hours, you know? <laughs> a quick listen. We'll touch, we'll touch briefly on what we covered there, but today our main focus will be the myriad of theories surrounding the flights and buildings destroyed on the September 11th attacks. That is, World Trade Centers 1 and 2, commonly referred to as the Twin Towers, World Trade Center Tower 7, or Building 7, the Pentagon, and Flight 93. So Andy, since you're frequently known in some circles as the harbinger of sorrow, mm -hmm. um, why don't you remind everyone what happened on 9-11? Hey, sure thing, Art. Uh, this is, after all, my favorite topic to share when I meet new people. This is always how I kick off a conversation with somebody I've never met. Um, so <clears throat> Al-Qaeda hijackers boarded four different commercial airliners, two at Logan International Airport in Boston, Massachusetts, and one each at Newark Liberty International Airport in Newark, New Jersey, and Washington Dulles International Airport near Washington, D.C., all four planes were headed to California. Large planes set for long flights were chosen to maximize the amount of fuel aboard. American Airlines Flight 11 departed Logan Airport at 7.59 a.m. en route to Los Angeles with 11 crew, 76 passengers, and five hijackers aboard, led by Mohammed Atta. Flight 11 crashed into the north side of the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m., Media coverage of the crash was swift and extensive. At 8.14 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 departed Logan Airport, also bound for Los Angeles, with nine crew, 51 passengers, and five hijackers, led by Marwan El-Shehi, aboard. Flight 175 crashed into the south side of the southern tower of the World Trade Center at 9.03 a.m., with media cameras still rolling, covering the first crash. At 8.20 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 departed Washington Dulles, headed to Los Angeles with six crew, 53 passengers, and five hijackers, led by Hani Hanjour. Flight 77 struck the west side of the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m. Finally, at 8.42 a.m., mere minutes before the first plane hit the World Trade Center, United Airlines Flight 93 took off from Newark International en route to San Francisco with seven crew, 33 passengers, and four hijackers led by Ziad Jarrah. Flight 93's intended target is believed to be either the White House or, more likely, the U.S. Capitol building, but it never reached that target. Passengers on Flight 93 attempted to subdue the hijackers after receiving phone calls about the other airline crashes that morning. The hijackers feared the passengers might take control of the plane, and so... At 10.03 a.m., the plane was intentionally crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Even before Flight 93 crashed at 9.59 a.m., the south tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. 
Not long after, at 10.28 a.m., the North Tower collapsed, sending debris into the Seven World Trade Center building, which set off fires inside the building. Seven World Trade Center collapsed at 5.21 p.m. The Pentagon also sustained significant damage at the site of the impact. Now, we're going to do more of a point-counterpoint style of uh, research here, as opposed to our regular kind of episode structure where we usually cover like the entire story or the entire conspiracy theory. And then we kind of like pepper in some of the skeptic takes or explanations we found. Uh, we think this point counterpoint style will make it easier to intake the whole enchilada this way. And boy, who is there a whole ton of enchilada to cover for you? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a lot of enchilada when we're going to explain some of the jargon we're going to use just to save time. <laughs> so, uh, Here's some jargon we'll use interchangeably to save time. If we ever say WTC or something like that, it means World Trade Center. The Twin Towers, if we say Twin Towers, that's referring to World Trade Center buildings 1 and 2. WTC 7 or Building 7 or World Trade Center 7 all refer to World Trade Center Building 7, which is the one that fell but wasn't hit by a plane. Truther is a um, umbrella term that we're going to use for this episode to relate to people who believe these attacks were perpetrated by our own government. And in this case, the buildings demolished by them as well. We want to make a um, we want to make it clear, though, that even within like the, the truther kind of community, there's different sects of belief. There's different offshoots. Not everyone believes that the buildings were uh, brought down, you know, by the government or not every one of them believes this or they might disagree with that, etc. But for the case of this episode, it's just going to make it a lot easier if we just refer to them all as the umbrella term truther. Um, now, anti-truthers or skeptics, as we'll often say, are, are going to be what we mean when we say people who refute truther claims. So um, that's kind of the jargon we're going to use here today. Now, flights 11 and 175, the ones that hit the Twin Towers, are easily some of the most debated of any of the buildings we'll cover. So let's start there, Andy. And what a better place to start than with their owner, Larry Silverstein. Larry Silverstein is an American businessman specializing in real estate, high-value real estate. He also owned the World Trade, some of the World Trade Center buildings during the 9-11 attacks. You see, uh, during the 90s, New York was struggling after the 1987 stock market crash. And there were high vacancies at the World Trade Center. So the governor of New York decided to privatize the World Trade Center buildings to have the highest bidder. And Silverstein eventually won. So on July 24th, 2001, buildings 1, 2, 4, and 5 were his for the low, low price of $3.2 billion. The agreement gave Silverstein, as leaseholder, the right and the obligation to rebuild the structures if destroyed. Uh-oh, more on that later. See, Larry's a wise guy. He ain't no friggin' dummy. That's why some truthers out there believe he did it for the money. Hey, I'm walking here. You see, after September 11th, all of Larry's World Trade Center properties were completely destroyed. Buildings 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 were all destroyed and damaged beyond repair. But Larry got into a dispute with insurers over the proper amount of coverage he should have received for his destroyed buildings. 
because Larry had taken out terrorist attack insurance policy on his properties. According to truthers, this is just a little too coincidental. Was Larry in on the plan to destroy his buildings? Well, the insurance companies were willing to fork over $3.55 billion for the destruction of WTC 1, 2, 4, and 5. Now you might be thinking, hey, I'm walking here. Also, that's a lot of money. I could buy a lot of I Heart New York t-shirts with that kind of cash. And it is, but Larry wanted double that amount, $7.1 billion, on the basis that two separate airplane strikes in two separate buildings constituted two occurrences within the insurance policy's meaning. The insurance company had the opposite opinion and wouldn't pay that amount. So they went to court. Now, some truthers like to point to this as evidence toward the claim that Larry was somehow in on the complete destruction of his very lucrative and valuable properties because the insurance payout would be so grand. But the attacks caused an estimated $7.1 billion in damage. In the end, Larry and the insurance companies settled for $4.5 billion. So if this was an insurance scam, it was easily the worst fucking scam insurance scam in history and someone needs to have a chat with mad money jim kramer okay (laughs) it's also worth mentioning that the world trade center had already been bombed once before in 1993 and that several major terror plots against u.s landmarks had been uncovered since then in light of this an anti-terrorism insurance policy would appear to be an entirely logical purchase for these properties but truthers aren't done beating off old larry just yet See, Larry wasn't in the World Trade Center buildings on the 9-11 attacks. That's pretty convenient, right? Even more so when you learn that every day since July 26th, 2001, Jerry, Larry, excuse me, would eat breakfast and have meetings at the Windows on the World restaurant in the Twin Towers. But on September 11th, 2001, Larry's wife made a dermatologist appointment for him. For truthers, this is too convenient to pass up. He must have been in on the destruction of his incredibly lucrative and valuable properties. That's why he wasn't in the buildings on the day they were destroyed. And to be fair, there's really no way for anti-truthers to refute this other than to say... Maybe? It is very convenient that he wasn't in the building and lost his life that day. However, for them, that doesn't show cause for conspiracy. There are thousands of people who work in the World Trade Center, and tons of them may have been off conveniently that day. There's tons of celebrities who conveniently avoided boarding flights or being involved in 9-11, in the 9-11 attacks that day. For example, the head chef of the Windows on the World restaurant, Chef Michael uh, Lomanaco, also wasn't there that day. He went to go get his glasses repaired earlier rather than the appointment he had in the middle of the day, missing the uh, attacks completely. Actor extraordinaire Marky Mark Wahlberg on September 11th, 2001, he and some friends were scheduled to fly on American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston to Los Angeles. And at the last minute, they changed their plans and decided to charter a plane to Toronto, Canada for a film festival. Seth MacFarlane on September 11th, 2001, he was also scheduled to return to Los Angeles on American Airlines Flight 11 after being a keynote speaker at his alma mater, the Rhode Island School of Design in Rhode Island. Fortunately for McFarlane, his travel agent told him his flight would leave Logan Airport at 8.15 a.m. when it was actually scheduled to depart at 7.45 a.m. 
McFarlane arrived at Boston Logan Airport a few minutes after boarding uh, was stopped on his flight, and he was told he would have to wait for the next flight. An hour later, Flight 11 was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, killing everyone on the plane. McFarlane quickly contacted his parents after the plane hit the World Trade Center to let them know he was not on it and was alive. But here's a conspiracy for you. Both Seth McFarlane and Mark Wahlberg created slash starred in the movie Ted. Coincidence? Art, there's no conspiracy that I laugh my friggin' butt off at the movie Ted like, OMG, a crude talking teddy bear? Like, how do these guys come up with this stuff? I mean, LMAO. Oh, God. What a funny fucking movie. Oh, man. I left my freaking butt off at that. Oh, man. Saw that movie so much. Left my freaking butt off. Oh. Anyway, truthers uh, aren't quite done giving it hard to Larry just yet either. Another theory is that the government made sure there wasn't enough spray-on fireproof asbestos insulation to ensure that the buildings went down. Anti-truthers say this point is completely moot. As we'll discuss later, when the planes crashed into the towers, they completely eradicated and shredded off all the fireproof insulation anyway. If it was asbestos, it would have just dispersed into the air. All right, let's leave Larry alone for now and get into some real meat and potato truther topics here. Let's start with everybody's favorite, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Truthers claim that molten steel was found in the basement wreckage of the Twin Towers seven weeks after the attacks. How is this possible? Jet fuel cannot reach hot enough temperatures to melt steel beams. Where did this molten metal come from? Jet fuel burns at 1,100 to 1,200 degrees Celsius. The temperature needed to melt steel is around 1,510 degrees Celsius. And many truthers use this to say why they believe the buildings were brought down with explosives or some other kind of device method from the inside. They also cite the initial FEMA report, uh, that's the uh, Federal uh, Emergency Management Association, uh, report released after the attacks, which does acknowledge that no large fire-protected steel frame building, which WTC 1 and 2 were, had previously collapsed solely due to fire. Now, when it comes to jet fuel melting steel beams, anti-truthers, they agree. Jet fuel literally cannot get hot enough to melt steel. But experts say that the steel frames didn't need to melt. However, they, they just needed to get hot enough to lose their structural strength. When the planes smashed into the buildings, they tore through the crucial exterior load-bearing columns and some of the internal load-bearing columns, which then, you know, transferred all the load of those upper floors onto the surviving load-bearing columns, significantly weakening them. Also, a great deal of the fireproofing insulation was torn away from the surviving columns on the impact, leaving them exposed to the fire more easily. Speaking of fireproofing, it was this shitty spray-on stuff that was first used in the 1960s. It's like super lightweight and fluffy and can easily crumble in your hands. Moreover, the remaining fireproofing could have actually helped to trap heat in to the support beams. It was a bad situation. But what skeptics say truthers miss the point on is that jet fuel is just the catalyst for the fires. It was simply the igniter. All the debris, the paper, the rugs, the curtains, the furniture, the fucking bobbleheads, the 
the fucking, uh, you know, the books and the chairs and furniture and uh, ferns. <laughs> All of the shit inside the offices were highly combustible. And they were responsible for transferring the heat to the columns that eventually brought the towers down. At the time of impact, the, pa- the planes were carrying 10,000 gallons of jet fuel. But the jet fuel only burned for about 10 minutes. And the towers stood longer than 10 minutes giving evidence towards the debris and junk in the towers being the ones really causing the heat. And this heat, much like Andy and I's spring 2013 calendar photo shoot where we wore nothing but jock straps, was hot. <laughs> that was hot. We still have those, by the way, if anybody wants to buy a calendar. Yeah, we'll send you one. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, you can move the dates around. Anyway. Pockets of air within the Twin Towers were measuring 1,000 degrees Celsius. Steel begins to lose its strength at low, as low as 400 degrees Celsius and loses roughly 50% of its strength at 600 degrees Celsius. At 980 degrees Celsius, it retains less than 10% of its strength, and this is all according to the American Iron and Steel Institute. But, you know, you don't got to take their word for it either. You can look up YouTube videos of steel workers heating up metal to the point of where it gets so damn hot. It's not melting, but... It's so weak, you can push it over with your pinky. Hot stuff coming through. It's it's hot stuff. The planes, because they were banked when they crashed into the buildings, crashed through multiple floors. Floors 93 through 99 for the North Towers and 77 through 85 for the South Towers. These impacts shredded through the flimsy interior walls and splashed jet fuel fucking everywhere, igniting all that combustible office debris. All this structural damage and heat put immense stress on the remaining load-bearing structures and transferred most of it to the weak exterior load-bearing structures. That is how the towers fell. No melting of steel needed, just weakened steel. All this combined was a recipe for disaster. But it's not the only tall building-related fire disaster on record. Oh no, it's not, Art. The 1991 Meridian Plaza Hotel fire is often brought up as the truther answer to the claim of fire alone not being able to destroy a skyscraper. The 38-story hotel caught fire and remained intact. How could the World Trade Center buildings fall to fire? But truther skeptics say it was really the damage of the airplanes crashing into the building that ensured they fell. The plane crashes took out the fireproofing. They took out the sprinkler systems. They took out the bulk of the load-bearing structures. They splooged jet fuel everywhere, and while that's not hot enough to melt steel, it is hot enough to cause a roaring, raging fire. A fire which weakened those remaining structures not destroyed by the planes. Truther skeptics have their own terrible tragedy that they call upon to refute claims in this so-called, what we're calling, world's worst pissing contest. On April 29th, 2007, A freeway accident occurred in Oakland, California, where a tanker truck carrying 8,600 gallons of gasoline lost control and crashed on an elevated underpass in the MacArthur Maze, a knot of converging freeway ramps taking cars from the 2480, 580, 880, and 980 freeways and funneling them into the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge toll plaza. The fuel exploded into flames and burned for several hours but it only took minutes for the section of highway above the flames to collapse and fall onto the section below. 
The director of Caltrans, the California State Transportation Authority, said that the heat from the fire melted the steel girders and bolts that supported the concrete roadway, causing the sudden collapse. But hey, if it wasn't jet fuel that melted those steel beams, then what exactly was all that molten metal found in the wreckage? And where did it come from? Skeptics say the massive debris pile sat cooking for weeks like an insulated kiln. In fact, a November 19, 2001 New York Times article said that the fires at Ground Zero were still burning two months after the attacks, and some were calling it the longest-burning commercial building fire ever recorded. Other skeptics simply say that the, quote, molten metal could mean anything. It could be any melting metal. In fact, some of the photos used in theorist papers is of molten glass with unmelted steel rods in it. But truthers aren't buying it. The molten metal to them is proof that the buildings were brought down with the help of demolition devices like bombs or explosive charges planted by the government and that they they caused the molten metal. Now, to refute this, according to Mark uh, Loizu, what do you think, Eddie? I think that it's probably Mark Loizu. Loizu. The president of the Controlled Demolition Inc., um, although demolition charges do provide intense heat, it happens way too fast to melt steel. Explosives cut through steel with force, not heat, to cause a demolition. Mark mentions that you can swipe your hand um, through a candle's flame and remain unscathed, but if you hold your hand a few inches above the flame, oh, you'll feel the burn. Mark also mentions that you can put a demolition charge on a steel beam, set it off, and then immediately put your hand where the blast was and not get burned. Charges blow out fast, not hot. I can only imagine, though, that this uh, this is a regular event at the Controlled Demolition Inc. Company picnic. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, I also really liked the blindfolded race where they make you hold a spoon of active dynamite in your mouth. <laughs> oh, man, so many memories. Uh, so many workers' comp requests denied. Hmm. Great times. Anywho, uh, the occurrence of molten metal in the wreckage isn't the only evidence that truthers cite as to why they believe the towers were brought down with explosives. Let's talk about the puffs of dust and flashes seen as the towers fell. As the towers collapsed, plumes of smoke, dust, and debris blowed out, bellowed out from the sides of the buildings. Truthers say this is evidence of explosive charges going off bringing the towers down. Again, skeptics point out that this is from the building's pancaking, which is not as cool or delicious as it sounds. It's where the floors of a building fall and crash into each other, stacking up and falling with more and more force like a stack of pancakes. As a significant portion of the floor is collapsing, it's shooting air and concrete dust out the window with great force. Truthers also bring up in various slow motion videos or photos small flashes of light seen in the windows of the buildings as they fall. This, along with the puffs of dust, are evidence to the explosive's claim. Skeptics, however, are quick to point out that these flashes are either reflections of the sun on the windows or, again, the windows being popped off the walls as the floors pancake and the compressed air is queefed out. But it doesn't end there. Seismographs at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Observatory in Palisades, uh... New York, 21 miles north of the World Trade Center, recorded two enormous spikes, which truthers believe show uh, shows that explosions actually have brought down the Twin Towers. And that makes some sense, right? Explosions go big boom, and that would probably show up on a seismograph. But hey, 
I'm no friggin' egghead. You know me, bunk funkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The strongest jolts were all registered at the beginning of the collapses, well before the falling debris struck the earth, truthers claim. However, the seismologists who recorded these very spikes uh, very much refute the claims that the truthers draw from their data. According to them, there is no scientific basis for the conclusion that explosions brought down the towers. The impact of the planes barely registered on the Richter scale, neither hit a 1.0, and the tower's collapses reached a peak Richter scale rating of 2.3, which might sound cool, but is actually pretty small and generally not felt by humans. Uh, For reference, like a 4.0 is usually like a pretty strong fucking earthquake. (laughs) Furthermore, Skeptics claim that there is data manipulation. Data manipulation? Data manipulation, Andy. The truthers show the seismic data over a 30-minute period. When you measure data over the long period like that, the collapses do appear as a sudden momentary spikes. Um, But if you zoom in and look at them over like a 40-second span or something more reasonable, it is clear that there was sustained activity for the duration of the collapses. Speaking of the towers collapsing, let's talk about the collapsing art. Why didn't the towers fall down like my Jenga games? Or, why didn't they break down like my hopes and dreams did? What I'm getting at here, bunk funkers, is the idea that truthers bring up that if the towers really did fall due to structural damage, why did they fall in place? Why didn't they topple forward or backward or all over the place? Kind of rhymed. Anti-truthers point out that while it may make sense for a building to fall down like a big old oak tree would after you spend a long day chopping it down, you know, like maybe how Ryan Gosling's character did in The Notebook. God, Art, can you imagine if Ryan Gosling's character from The Notebook built a house with his bare hands for you? Getting all sweaty, chopping down those trees and whatnot. (laughs) Goodness, I am blushing. (laughs) I mean, did Amy Adams' character really need to think about it at all? The choice is clear for me. Well, I don't know if Amy Adams had anything to do with it because it was actually Rachel McAdams. Oh. Whoever wrote that is a dummy. Wow. Um, Well, it doesn't matter. The character didn't need to think about it. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, the reality is That when the planes struck the buildings, they did intense structural damage to the upper portions of the buildings. The raging fire that ensued due to the jet fuel burned just hot enough to weaken the already overloaded remaining steel support beams. When these beams finally gave way, gravity took over. Gravity is the reason the towers fall down in place. They carry so much fucking mass and there's so much potential energy stored in those massive concrete floors, they just come crashing straight down. These buildings are designed to operate this way. They're designed to bear their weight straight down so that they don't fall to the sides like a Jenga tower. The fact that the structures fall completely in place is a macabre silver lining in a way. The destruction caused by the building falling sideways would be enormous. And... Bunkfuckers, trust us, we have enormous egos. We know enormous stuff. Um, I know regular enormous stuff too, not just enormous things. All right, fair enough. Thank you. Okay, so maybe it wasn't explosives. Could it have been anything else? Of course it could. Some truthers say it could have been a nuke. 
Oh, man, I don't know. You know, do we need to give the anti-truther opinion on that one? There's no evidence of a nuke. If it was a nuke, it would be really bad. <laughs> we probably would okay. know. Yeah, I mean, listen. We're no eggheads, but we might have gone to that nuke map thing where you can see what nuclear fallout would look like on anywhere on Google Maps. And it would have taken out a lot of the city if it was a nuke. Even a small nuke. Anyway. Okay. Maybe it's not an explosive. Maybe it's not a nuke. But what about thermite? So along with melted steel slash metals, nanothermite was found in dust samples from the tower's debris. Four dust samples collected near ground zero show chemical traces of unreacted thermite, an aluminum powder and metal oxide mixture that burns up to 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit or 2,482 degrees Celsius when ignited. Multicolored chips containing both iron oxide and aluminum were found in the dust, but these iron oxide greens are so small, approximately 100 nanometers across, so it's theorized that nanothermite or superthermite was used on key columns to destroy the towers and boy is thermite good for destroying buildings he's also one of my favorite attacking operators in rainbow six siege shout out to anyone who gets that reference or plays that game anywho thermite doesn't explode when it reacts it burns hot baby all concentrated in a local area like local sexy singles which makes it a great tool for cutting through metal Conversely, the band tool makes for a great way to listen to metal. Accompanying the thermite claims are typically pictures, you know, showing steel structural beams at ground zero that have been precisely cut at a diagonal angle. The exact same way demolitions experts would use to take down a building in a controlled demolition. So what do the anti-truthers have to say to that? Well, first of all, they say that these photos that are frequently shown come from vertical beams that workers sheared off after 9-11, while they were clearing out the debris. Although a thermite reaction is highly exothermic, it is nearly impossible to effectively channel it sideways to cut a vertical beam, since it tends to pour straight down as it burns. Listen, bunkfunkers, we're no eggheads, you know this about us, but let's run some egghead numbers here, okay? Bear with us. According to the National Aluminum Association... <laughs> The airframe of a typical commercial transport aircraft is 80% aluminum by weight. The plane of Flight 175, a Boeing 767, is slightly more than 180,000 pounds. So according to them, the source of most of the molten metal found in the debris was aluminum alloys from the aircraft, which, you know, aluminum alloy typically melts between 475 and 640 degrees Celsius. As we already mentioned, the fires inside the building raged at around uh, 1,000 degrees Celsius. So there was ample opportunity for them to melt that aluminum. Now, a thermite reaction could have occurred with aluminum metal and any oxide that happens to be near it. There was a lot of aluminum in the building itself, along with the plain fuselage. So much so that it would, in any other circumstance, Get the National Aluminum Association rock fucking hard. But anyway, all that aluminum could have produced a small thermite reaction that produced a small amount of molten iron. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, much more on them later, estimated that it would take 0.13 pounds of thermite to heat a pound of steel section 
um, to the necessary weakening point, which would require literally tons of thermite to cause the extensive damage that Flight 175 wrought. Furthermore, many thousand pounds, many thousands, many thousand pounds of thermite (laughs) would need to have been inconspicuously placed ahead of time, remotely ignited, and somehow held in direct contact with the surface of hundreds of massive structural components, all of which seems highly improbable for anti-truthers. All right, bunk funkers. We've been sitting here talking some egghead numbers, talking about egghead physics of skyscrapers and egghead steel melting temperatures. I mean, geez, Louise, let's talk about something that isn't for eggheads, but for friggin' chads. Flying planes. Flying planes is hella sick. And as we've showed in past episodes, pilots like to fuck. They're chads, and they'll cuck your wife right in front of your face. But this leaves us in kind of a pickle, and not the pickle Rick kind of shit. You ever seen this, Art? Guy turns himself into a pickle. I kid you not, Art. He turns himself into a pickle. He's called Pickle Rick. Funniest shit I've ever seen. (laughs) But pilots are chads. But the hijackers? Those guys were not chads. They were virgins. They were definitely losers. And what they did were heinous acts of terrorism. So that leaves truthers with a big question. How the fuck did four nobodies learn to fly commercial planes? And how did they fly them so well that they could easily hit their targets? Perhaps someone else said it best when they said this. Quote, It seems to me like 19 amateurs with box cutters taking over four commercial airliners and hitting 75% of their targets. It raises a lot of questions. End quote. And... Quote, I got tiger blood, man. My brain fires in a way that is, I don't know, maybe not from this particular terrestrial realm. End quote. Both quotes by celebrated actor Charlie Sheen, but only one relates to conspiracies about 9-11. The other, well, I have no idea what it relates to. I'm not sure what hijackers he's talking about. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, okay. Now it makes more sense. Um, <laughs> all right. So I guess, ultimately, Charlie Sheen perfectly captures a sentiment shared by many in the 9-11 truther world. How could terrorists with no extensive plotting, uh, no extensive piloting background, take over and fly commercial airliners straight into their targets? This relates to all four flight paths on 9-11, but we'll cover the twin tower portions for now each flight path only had one hijacker who was trained to fly the rest of the hijackers were the so-called muscle and according to in-flight phone calls the hijacker pilot would actually sit quietly in their seats until the muscle took over the cockpit then the pilots entered and got to work Mohammed Atta uh, on Flight 11 and Marwan El-Shehi on Flight 175 were the hijacker pilots who attacked the twin towers They came to the U.S. in 2000 and underwent 40 hours of private flight school training to get their private pilot's licenses for small single-engine planes. They frequently changed schools because they flunked flight exams, but eventually passed. They also took simulator training for flying large commercial jets. That leaves many truthers wondering, how can hijackers who were known to be terrible pilots maneuver these complicated commercial aircraft? 
After all, you generally need 250 hours of flying time, as well as other certifications involving instrument flying, night hours, cross-country miles, multi-engine aircraft flying, etc., all to become a commercial airline pilot. Like we said, these guys fuck. Now, truth or skeptics point out that when the hijackers took over the planes, they were already in the air, which they say isn't really that hard to fly. And if you do ask any pilot worth their salt, they'll tell you the hardest parts about flying are takeoff, flying in bad weather, and landing, none of which these hijackers had to do. Many 9-11 truthers believe that these men had to be skilled pilots, but according to skeptics, it's the exact opposite. Flying a commercial jet is relatively painless, in a way, and functions very much on autopilot. You enter the GPS coordinates, and it essentially goes right there. The hijackers had trained in how to use the in-flight GPS navigation system of a commercial airliner, which, you know, actually functions very similar to the ones we all used to have in our cars before smartphones and Google Maps dominated that industry. You know, like TomTom. The hijackers, or Magellan, if you had a Magellan system, shout out. The hijackers did indeed buy GPS devices on September 10th and simply punched in the coordinates of where they wanted to go. Many of the in-flight phone calls uh, passengers made reported the jerky, erratic movement of the flights. People were getting sick, and it was a very bumpy ride. These idiot terrorists even made announcements over the air traffic control radio instead of the onboard plane intercom. These guys really didn't have a command of their crafts. They also only really had to pilot the planes for a few minutes, and the descents were reported as extremely rocky. Now, the final truth or piece of evidence we'll bring up is the claim that the Empire State Building was hit by an airplane and it survived. So why would the Twin Towers crumble and fall? Surely, this is more suspicious evidence for the idea that explosives or something else beside a plane crash and raging inferno caused the towers to fall. Now, bunk funkers, you should know by now that the collapses of the WTC buildings on 9-11 are among the most extensively studied structural failures in American history, coming in second, of course, to every toilet I've ever shat in. Your ability to destroy porcelain thrones is beyond me, Andy. Yes, and me destroying toilets has been extensively studied. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Bunk Funkers, in 1945, a B-52 bomber crashed into the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. And it's no love shack art, I'll tell you what. (laughs) One of the B-52's engines crashed through the building and 800 gallons of high-octane fuel exploded upon impact and ignited a series of fires inside the building. The similarities are striking between this incident and 9-11. However... There's one key difference. The Empire State Building suffered very little damage outside the areas of immediate impact. So it begs the question, how could a plane crash into the ESB, the Empire State Building, and it remained unscathed, but the WTC collapsed? Well, like most skyscrapers built before the 1960s, the Empire State Building was a Marvel masterpiece. But goddamn, it was thick. The skyscraper consists of multiple reinforced concrete columns and a thick, sexy masonry exterior. This is one fuckable building, Art. Conversely, modern skyscrapers and the WTC buildings prioritized office space as the absence of interior columns allowed for 40,000 square feet more of office space. Somebody call Mike Judge! 
Anywho, the Twin Towers were tubular structures in which a dense core of steel and concrete shared load-bearing responsibilities with a relatively thin exterior shell of box columns uh, fabricated from steel plates. The Twin Towers used a tube-within-a-tube architectural design, which provided considerable open office space in the interiors of the towers. Much of the structural support was provided by the the dense grouping of thick central core columns in the interior and the perimeter walls on the outside. For reference, the Empire State Building is 38 pounds per cubic foot. The WTC were 8 pounds per cubic foot. Also, the World Trade Center uh, buildings were designed to withstand a... Now, and uh, I should clarify, the Twin Towers specifically, were designed to withstand a Boeing 707, which was the largest commercial airliner at the time, but... According to the World Trade Center designers, they didn't really take into consideration the fuel or that it would explode and cause such severe fire damage. But overall, the B-52 that struck the ESB was only traveling at 200 miles per hour compared to the 440 and 540 mile per hour Boeing 767s that struck the World Trade Center. Moreover, the B-52 was one-tenth the weight of the 767s and had one-tenth the amount of fuel. Plus, the B-52 hit the ESB flat on, unlike the 767s, which were banked and sheared off multiple floors and destroyed important load-bearing columns. So in a nutshell, that's why the Empire State Building survived a plane crash and the Twin Towers didn't. And, um, well, Andy, that's, uh, that's it. That's our coverage of the Twin Wait, Towers and uh, Art. What about space beams? Uh, what? What about space beams, Andy? Space beams. There's a very small amount, like like maybe one or two, in the truther community who believe beams, possibly from space, were used to turn the buildings into dust. Um, the buildings were dustified, turned to dust from dust to dust. Uh, well, like, I guess they did turn to dust in a way. Art. Right? Art. From dust we came to dust we shall return. Have you given any thought on if you want to be cremated when you die? Me? I don't. I want to be cremated. Yep. Process my corpse into a tasty soft serve that all my funeral goers have to enjoy or else I'll haunt them for the rest of their days. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be Casper the a little too friendly ghost, huh, Andy? <laughs> I'm a stinker. Oh, God. Okay. Let's shift gears away from whatever it is we're talking about right now and mention that some, uh, what what some truthers call the, quote, smoking gun of 9-11. And it's, it's not an actual gun. It's another building. Oh, of course. <laughs> it's all buildings. It's all buildings. It's in the title. <laughs> you knew what you were getting when you started listening. Uh, World Trade Center World Trade Center Building 7 is often forgot about when mentioning 9-11. And that's because for a while after the attacks, the government and many avid 9-11 researchers, well, they really had no clue how exactly it fell. See, World Trade Center 7 didn't get hit by an airplane, but at 5.20 p.m., seven hours after the collapse of the Twin, twin Towers, WTC 7 still came tumbling to the ground. How did this happen? What explanations do truthers give for its destruction? Well, as you can probably guess by this point, truthers believe it was brought down by a bomb or other controlled demolition device. But hey, let's give some background first. What's so special about this building anyway? 
World Trade Center 7 housed a lot of high-profile tenants, including the offices of the Secret Service, the CIA, Department of Defense, the IRS, the, uh, the SEC, and the Office of Emergency Management. So, of course, these high-profile tenants fanned the flames of truth or belief. There was valuable information about the planning and plot to conduct 9-11 inside this building, and it needed to be destroyed. So it was rigged with explosives, much like they believed the Twin Towers were, and they blew it up to cover their tracks. Before the official report by the NIST on the issue and the cause of WTC-7's destruction, FEMA released a study eight months after 9-11 saying that long-burning fires were the cause of the collapse. See, WTC-7 housed some 42,000 gallons of diesel fuel that could power 14 backup generators. You know, because the building houses the Office of Emergency Management, and that's an important office to stay open 24-7 in the case of an emergency, like 9-11. But FEMA speculated that all the fuel probably helped kindle a raging fire, one as swift as the coursing river, with all the force of a great typhoon. With all the strength of a raging fire, mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Anywho, uh, this gave the truthers a lot to refute, because up until this point, no other examples of large fire-protected steel buildings had collapsed because of fire alone. However, we should point out that after 9-11, there have been steel fire-protected buildings that have fallen due to fire alone. Check out the Plasco building in Tehran, Iran, and the Windsor Tower in Madrid, Spain. So in 2004, the NIST released a progress report that modified this fire hypothesis and said that WTC-7 was far more compromised by debris from the destruction of the Twin Towers, which were only 300 feet away. Then, in 2008, the NIST finally released their full report on the collapse of Building 7. By this time, truthers had made WTC-7 their smoking gun. So, if not a bomb, what did cause the destruction of WTC-7? The tower's collapse was initiated by the expansion of steel beams into fires. The fires were caused by the debris damage uh, from the Twin Towers, which discharged as much as 107 joules in kinetic energy. But they started small cubicle fires, which spread from cubicle to cubicle, much like the smell of my freshly microwaved sea bass I have for lunch every day spreads from the office kitchenette to all of my coworkers. They love it. So everything is starting to catch fire, but the sprinkler systems are knocked out because the twin towers destroyed the water lines. These fires did burn at a lower temperature overall than the twin towers. Eggheads say 299 degrees Celsius on average, but did reach peaks of 593 degrees Celsius. Besides burning up all those cubicles and papers and whatnot, they also caused the 30-foot steel beams that supported the floors in the northeast corner to expand 0 0.000065 inches per inch of original length for every degree. Key floor beams increased in length by more than 4.25 inches in that part of the building. Much like how you run a jar of pickles under hot water to loosen the lid, when you heat shit up, it expands, Art! 
And at floor 13, the expansion sheared the bolts connecting column 79 in the northeast corner of the building's interior to the girder reaching across to column 44 on the tower's north face. At 5.20 p.m., the continued expansion took its final toll and pushed the girdle entirely off its seat, holding it against column 79, sending floor 13 collapsing on the floors below, causing yet another chain reaction of pancaking collapsing floors, columns, and girders. (laughs) Hey, you better be careful, Andy. You're starting to sound like a regular old egghead. Art, I am not a friggin' egghead. I'm not. I'm a hogged-out Chad who co-hosts a podcast. You're right. I'm sorry, dude. That was a bad joke. We're not eggheads. Thank you. Fuck. So, I listen. I apologized, okay? Thank you. I accept your apology. I forgive you. So, so never much forget. like with the twin. <laughs> oh boy, Andy, you can't never forget with this topic. I never forget. I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> so much like with the twin towers, truthers like to point out that if the building is taking all this damage on the northeast side, why doesn't the building fall down like a chopped tree? Why does the building fall in place like a controlled demolition? Anti-truthers say that conspiracy theories misunderstand the difference between a building and a tree. (laughs) Buildings are not like trees. Unless you're like a squirrel or a bird or something, then they're buildings kind of, but only for those creatures and not really for humans. WTC7 was 330 feet long at its max and 140 feet wide, unlike a typical tree, which is maybe a few feet in diameter. In order to tip a building... With that large of a base, you would need to deflect the building more than 70 feet in any direction before its center of gravity moved beyond its base and caused it to timber like a tree would. And this makes no sense, especially with WTC-7, because nothing struck it with an external lateral force. And for reference, the Boeing 767, traveling at 540 miles per hour, which struck the second twin tower... Swayed the building 27 inches. Second point anti-truthers make is that buildings are mostly air. So according to Thomas, Thomas W. Edgar, the Thomas Lord Professor of Materials Engineering and Engineering Systems at MIT, an egghead, mm, yeah. tipping a building like a fell tree just isn't feasible due to how much they are made of air. Trees are rigid, monolithic structures, but buildings They're mostly air when you break it down. It's a bunch of fucking boxes and structures that just contain airspace. When thousands of tons of steel begin to collapse, they just have too much inertia heading downward to change change direction. Skeptics really want to put the truthers to rest. So let's assume they did use an explosive to destroy WTC-7. Using computer simulations, NIST calculated that you would need to affix 9 pounds or 4 kilograms of demolition-grade explosives to column 79 in order to theoretically cause the same destruction of Building 7 that actually happened on 9-11. This is assuming that no building tenants saw the removal of column enclosures, no building tenants saw workers cutting column sections with torches, no building tenants saw placement of wires for the detonation. A blast in an office building would 100% guarantee that windows would shatter and explode from the shock. 
The computer simulation showed that nearly every window on the northeast side would be blown out and photographic evidence of the actual WTC-7 destruction doesn't show that. A blast at large would also create a massive sound wave which would reverberate throughout the buildings of the New York Financial District. This blast would be so loud it could be heard across the Hudson River in New Jersey. In other words, it would be like the sound of me taking a big old poopy on the toilet because I'm such a disgusting poopy man. Jesus. Have some fucking self-respect, Andy. I can't, Art. This is what society wants me to be. That's who I am, baby. Am I funny to you now, society? Am I your little clown? You joker. We live in a society, Art. Oh, God. Andy is donning clown makeup quickly. Bunk Funkers, let's change the subject. It's time to bring up our old friend, Larry Silverstein. God, they just can't leave this old fucking guy alone. God damn. Did you know he got hit by a car before he brought the WTC? This guy either has the worst luck ever or the best. <laughs> That's true, too true, Andy. Uh, truthers believe Larry once again wanted the destruction of his valuable property. He leased WTC-7 from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And in 2002, uh, for a PBS documentary uh, film called America Rebuilds, A Year at Ground Zero, Larry says this about the Building 7 collapse. I remember getting a call from the er, fire department commander telling me that, hey, we're not sure they're going to be able to contain the fire. And I said, we've got a, we've had such a terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it. And they made a decision to pull, and we watched the building collapse. Later in the documentary, a firefighter at Ground Zero notes, um, we're getting ready to pull Building 6, leading many to believe that when Larry said pull it, he meant destroy Building 7. But I say, and this is my theory, are we certain he wasn't playing a rousing game of Bop It? Did Larry say Bop It? Get it trending, people. I think he did. Well, obviously, Larry got backlash from this. And in 2005, he released a statement saying his comments were misinterpreted. When he said pull it, he wasn't talking about Bop It. There goes that. Liar. Or the building. But pulling a squadron of firefighters that were trying to put out fires in Building 7. Now, firefighters can confirm that pull is often a term used to mean removing personnel from a dangerous structure. So, Dick Wolf, if you're listening and we know you are, we very much expect to see a storyline on Chicago Fire involving the term pull and someone playing Bop It. Andy and I are very much available for the roles, but we refuse to audition. We're offered only and auditioning is beneath us. Also, my main character has to be either having active, hard, graphic, full insertion sex with another character in all my scenes, or ripping the world's biggest bong hit in all of my scenes. Meaning... I want other characters to enter the scene and before they say shit about the fire or the drama going on, or they got to say, whoa, dude, are you taking the world's biggest bong rip right now? <laughs> These are non-negotiable, Dick Wolf. All right, let's move on from Larry and start talking about Barry. <laughs> Barry Sanders, one of the greatest running backs ever in the history. Oh, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Different. Sorry, that's a different episode. Uh, Barry, episode. Barry Jennings, uh, that is. On 9-11, Barry Jennings ran into Building 7. 
I mean, Barry Sanders could have run into it as well. Then that probably would have made it collapse. Oh, it yeah. Juked it off of its foundation. Uh, on 9-11, Barry Jennings ran into Building 7 while most people were rushing away. Barry was an administrative superintendent for the New York City Housing Authority's Emergency Services Department as one, and was one of the last people evacuated from WTC7. In 2007, Barry gave an interview to the producers of the truther documentary Loose Change, alleging that he heard, quote, explosions in Building 7 before it collapsed. He also gave an interview in which he states that the Twin Towers were still up when he heard the explosion. However, in 2008, in an interview with the BBC, Barry backed off the claims he made in Loose Change, saying he, quote, didn't like the way he was portrayed, end quote. But where it gets an extra dash of conspiracy spice is that on August 19th, 2008, two days before the NIST released their final report on WTC7, Barry died at the age of 53. Speculation that the government killed him began almost immediately. Truthers really played this one up. Dylan Avery, the director of Loose Change, made statements in 2009 on a radio program that he looked into Barry's death and found, quote, really creepy things, end quote. The Jennings family home in Long Island was vacant and abandoned. For reference, Barry had a wife and four children. Avery also said he hired a private investigator to look into Barry's death, and the PI told him, quote, due to some of the information I have uncovered, I have determined that this is a job for the police. Please do not contact me ever again about this individual, end quote. Anti-truthers point to Barry's son, Barry Jennings Jr., for the real truth. When Barry Jr. was 19, he watched his father die of leukemia the day after his own birthday. To make matters worse, a few years after Barry Sr.'s death, Sheba, Barry Sr.'s wife, was stricken with a disease that limited her mobility. She went into a nursing home in upstate New York, and the Jennings family, unfortunately, foreclosed on their home. That's why it was found to be abandoned. For the Jennings family, the statements made by truthers cut deep, and Barry Jr. frequently took to truther sites to comment about how their claims that the government killed his father were hurtful and false. Another caveat that uh, truthers point out with WTC7 is the lack of wreckage. Now, that's pretty sus, my dude. Much, uh, much, of the, much of the wreckage for WTC7 was cleared away quickly, and a minimal amount was available for study in later investigations. Could this be evidence of a government cover-up? They point to the fact that the wreckage was shipped overseas to China before anyone could analyze it. Skeptics point out that the NIST um, investigators examined 236 pieces of steel from the wreckage of Towers 1 and 2. See, their steel columns were labeled and numbered, but the columns from Building 7, uh, 6, and 5 were not. Huh. Guess we know who the favorite buildings are, am I right? <laughs> no point in telling Buildings 5, 6, and 7 that you love them all equally. Clearly yeah. don't. They're obviously the red-headed stepchildren of the fucking World Trade Center. I feel bad for them. NIST uh, actually agrees with the truthers to a degree here now. There was much less evidence for WTC-7 than the Twin Towers. And they agree there is a lot less video and audio evidence for WTC-7 than there is of the Twin Towers. And their destruction masked WTC-7, and they weren't as many people around to film it. The NIST did make use of interviews, schematics, building studies, and what little audio and visual recordings they had in order to uh, create the fire destruction hypothesis. 
They also uh, used a lot of really advanced for the time computer generated models and scenario testing. As for the wreckage, 200,000 tons of salvaged steel from Ground Zero was either sold or reused. The Chinese steel company bought 50,000 tons at $120 per ton. An Indian steel company imported more than 55,000 um, tons of steel debris. And the U.S. Navy even used 7.5 tons of recycled WTC steel on board the USS New York. The World Trade Center attacks rightly command a lot of attention when discussing the events of 9-11. But let's not forget, in addition to the planes that hit the towers in New York, one plane crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one plane crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Similar to the World Trade Center, these other tragic events have also spawned their own conspiracies. The third plane to crash was American Airlines Flight 77, which, as a reminder, flew into the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m. Now, because I just can't help myself, for those of you who don't know, here's a bit of info on the Pentagon itself. The Pentagon is the headquarters of the U.S. Department of Defense, which is basically the U.S. government department responsible for national security and armed forces. The Pentagon is so named because it is a pentagonal in shape. Uh, that is, it has five sides. To really hammer the Pentagon theme home, not only is the building shaped like a Pentagon, but it's actually made up of five concentric Pentagons. Pentagon! Oddly enough, the groundbreaking for the Pentagon construction happened on September 11th, 1941, 60 years to the day before Flight 77 crashed into the building. Construction finished on the Pentagon in 1943, and since then it has remained the world's largest office building with roughly 6.5 million square feet, which is uh, 600,000 square meters for you metric heads out there, of space. There are 17.5 miles, about uh, 28 kilometers, of corridors in the building. Today it's home to some 26,000 employees. When I'm saying this is a big building, this is a big building! Pentagon! So, we know the official story. Thank you, Andy. Pentagon! Flight 77... Yep, there it is. Flight 77 was hijacked and piloted by Hani Hanjur into the western side of the Pentagon. Just as a reminder, Hanjur was the most experienced pilot, even possessing a commercial pilot's certificate. This being a key reason why Osama bin Laden and uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed recruited him for the mission. The plane cut a hole in the Pentagon, and ultimately 184 people perished in the attack, including everyone on board uh, Flight 77. So, what's the problem with the official story? Well, if we ask one of the biggest names in Pentagon truthers, French journalist Thierry Messiaen, the issue is the evidence that any plane at all crashed into the Pentagon. In April 2002, Messiaen is it Messiaen or Messiaen? Mesa. Oh, wow, I was totally off. Mesa. <laughs> Whatever. Get ready, bunkfuckers. Bunkle up Here for what go. Art's about to read. Messiaen published a book in French called Le Affroyable Imposture, <laughs> which means the horrifying fraud, and was eventually published in the United States as 9-11, The Big Lie. Any French-speaking folks out there want to correct me on that, feel free. Yeah. Uh, while the book contains a lot of accus accusations about 9-11 being orchestrated by the U.S. government, bin Laden being a CIA and Secret Service asset, collusion between the Bush and bin Laden fatties, families, yada, 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 you get the picture, we covered it in episode mm -hmm. one. It also contains an argument that the Pentagon wasn't hit by a plane at all. 
but was deliberately hit by a missile fired by the U.S. government. The basis for this claim, which is also backed by other prominent truthers like David Ray Griffin, is that there is no definitive video footage showing Flight 77 crashing into the Pentagon. Add to that what theorists say is a lack of debris around the Pentagon and a hole in the Pentagon that doesn't seem quite big enough for a Boeing 757, and you've got a recipe for conspiracy stew. So let's talk about that not-so-beautiful non-bean footage. Man, I'm going to have to make some chili now. Okay, take it easy, Andy. Get focused. Unlike that security cam footage from the Pentagon. Mm, good point. Pentagon! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, I get it. Pentagon! So for a long time, there was no video evidence of at all of Flight 77 striking the Pentagon. In 2002, some still photos from a security camera on the north side of the Pentagon were leaked to the media. The photos, though, they show just a slim white blob. Could be me. Yeah. Uh, appro- <laughs> it's not me. Approaching the building and then a big burst of flames. Finally, in 2006, the government released two videos of the crash from Pentagon camera footage. The only thing is, the videos didn't really clear up a lot of questions. It looked like the still images, just, you know, like in a slideshow. For some truthers, the lack of conclusive video evidence at the Pentagon is just more reason to believe the story about Flight 77 isn't so accurate. That said, not only did the released videos not definitively show Flight 77 hitting the Pentagon, they also did not definitively show a missile hitting the Pentagon. Now, it's probably fair to ask why the lack of video footage of the crash. Apparently, the Pentagon security camera footage has a frame rate of one frame per second. Meanwhile, Flight 77 crashed into the building going 780 feet per second. It's kind of unrealistic to expect a cinema-quality shot of the plane hitting the Pentagon given that disparity. Now, you might think the low frame rate is weird, especially given that these were cameras at the HQ of the USA's armed forces, but it's not unusual for security cameras to store security footage at a low frame rate to conserve storage space. So while the cameras at the Pentagon can shoot at a higher frame rate and are probably monitored in real time, the stored footage was only kept at one frame per second. After all, you probably don't expect to have to retrieve footage of something traveling that fast right next to the building. It's worth mentioning, too, that the crash of Flight 77 had numerous eyewitnesses, like people stuck in traffic on the roadways near the building. Also, Flight 77 clipped several light poles and a generator on its approach to the Pentagon, Are we really to believe that a missile bounced off all those objects and continued on to hit the target? Well, like we said, the security footage isn't the only leg truthers are standing on. How about those debris at the Pentagon site? What truthers see looking at at photos of the aftermath of the crash is a startling lack of pieces of airplanes scattered about. We'd like to tell you that truthers have a lot of good supporting evidence here to question the amount of debris, but really, it's just... Because they don't feel like the photos add up. For what it's worth, Mesan thinks there's so little wreckage from a jet because Flight 77 was actually brought down by the government over Ohio, Andy. I did 9-11. Oh, God. Just kidding. Mesan thinks uh, this because (laughs) when Flight 77 was over Ohio, the plane disappeared from radar starting at 8.56 a.m. and wasn't spotted again until approaching Washington. To rebut that real quick, the hijackers turned off the plane's transponder when they turned to go back toward Washington. 
once uh, once they got near Dulles Dulles Allen Airport um, in Washington, again the plane was was picked up on radar. Not to mention that the remains of passengers on Flight 77 were found at the Pentagon, and those remains were used to identify them through DNA analysis. Here's the thing. There are photos which clearly show wreckage of a jet airliner outside the Pentagon. That wreckage was quickly scooped up by the FBI only minutes after the crash. Truthers say this points to more evidence of a government cover-up, but experts will tell you that after two planes crashing into the World Trade Center towers, the FBI had more than reasonable belief that the Pentagon was also the scene of a crime. The FBI was collecting evidence no different than in any other crime they're investigating. The quick work by agents to collect the debris resulted in some photos of the aftermath which show very little evidence of an of airplane wreckage. There's also the matter of the amount of damage done to the Pentagon. Pentagon! Pentagon! Truth is, <laughs> feel like the hole's not big enough. And they feel that way about a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? Come on. <laughs> Pentagon. <laughs> Again, this is a question raised really only on examining the photographs and not of any kind of tangible evidence. In the attack, the Pentagon sustained damage in the form of a big gash in the outermost ring of the building. The E-ring. Remember, Pentagon is a collection of concentric pentagons. Pentagonception! Pentagonception! <laughs> there was also a large hole in the C-ring, the middle ring of the Pentagon structure. Truthers say that the holes in the E-ring and the C-ring are too small to accommodate a big old honking Boeing 757. This topic gets truthers so steamed, they might just blow their O-rings. <laughs> If you're like me, you also believe that when any object crashes through another object, it leaves a cartoonish cutout hole of itself in the object it hits. I'm no egghead scientist, but every time I run through a sheet of drywall, I leave behind the exact shape of my body as I run through the drywall. Almost any person, though, including that lady from that one commercial, will tell you, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. I hear it all the time. The hole created in Flight 77 in E-Ring was estimated at about 90 feet wide, according to the Pentagon Building Performance Report, a report on the findings of an investigation into the structural performance of the Pentagon in relation to the attack. I say estimated because there wasn't enough time to actually measure the size of the hole in the E-Ring since the exterior facade collapsed less than half an hour after the crash. Nevertheless, the wingspan of a Boeing 757 is 124 feet and 10 inches. How could it only make a 90-foot hole? Well, the wingspan is kind of irrelevant if the wings aren't intact when Flight 77 strikes the Pentagon. You remember the light poles and the generator Flight 77 hit on its way to the Pentagon? Bunk funkers? Well, eyewitnesses say that when Flight 77 clipped the generator, it damaged the, white, the right wing. Eyewitnesses also say that the left engine was damaged before impact by a vent outside the exterior wall of the building. Additionally, at impact, the plane was rolled to the left, so the right ring, right wing was elevated. Flight 77 likely didn't hit the Pentagon with fully intact wings or even head-on to maximize the width of the hole in the E-ring. Pre-crash damage to the wings is actually an important factor that limited the damage sustained by the Pentagon structure. It's estimated that 80% of the plane's fuel was stored in the wings and that about 20% of the fuel never made it into the Pentagon. 
The plane also made impact with the ground floor of the Pentagon, so fires resulting from the jet fuel were mainly contained to the first floor. This is a lot different than the World Trade Center towers, where basically all the fuel on the planes blew up into the upper floors of the building. But what about the sea hole? Yeah, it's sassy sea hole. What about the sea hole, the sea ring hole? Surely that hole is too small to have been made by a plane. It's only 16 feet wide. Well, about that, investigators say the hole was made by the plane's landing gear. Landing gear is one of the heaviest parts of the plane, and therefore it flew further into the Pentagon than some of the lighter parts of the plane, like the fuselage and the passengers. Um, Flight 77's landing gear was found between C and B rings in the Pentagon. In other words, the front of the plane cut the hole in the E ring, then crashed through the D ring, while the landing gear continued through the C ring, coming to rest before hitting the B ring. Another point of contention for truthers is the windows in the Pentagon. In photos after the crash, you can clearly see windows in the exterior facade that are intact, even windows directly above where the plane hit. Let's not forget, when the plane struck the Pentagon, it was crashing into a pretty solidly built structure. Paul Mlaikar, a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers scientist and team leader for the Pentagon Building Performance Report, describes it, quote, like taking a Coke can and smashing it against the wall, end quote. In a weird coincidence, the plane actually struck the part of the Pentagon most capable to withstand this type of impact. The part of the Pentagon that was struck by Flight 77 was thick on the interior with concrete support columns. The columns had recently been reinforced as part of the Pentagon's renovation and construction program, an effort to modernize the Pentagon structure. In the renovation project, the section of the building uh, Flight 77 struck is referred to as Wedge 1. Wedge 1 was the first section of the building to be renovated and was five days away from completion on 9-11. Photos from inside the Pentagon after the crash reveal that a lot of the remains of the plane are tangled up in these reinforced support columns. In addition to reinforced columns, Wedge 1 had blast-resistant windows installed just weeks before the attack. In a kind of funny way, it's somewhat, you know, it's, it's somewhat thanks to Osama bin Laden. When it was originally constructed in the 1940s, the Pentagon was built in a rush. It was completed in only 16 months, Andy. Come on. Pentagon! <laughs> and the building had little in the way of structural upgrades since the 1940s. In fact, on 9-11, windows in the building outside of Wedge 1 were just plain old commercial windows. The same windows installed in 1943. After the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and the 1998 attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, remember, uh, the embassy bombings were pulled off by al-Qaeda orchestrated by Osama bin Laden, these convinced the Defense Department the Pentagon needed to be made more secure. These blast-resistant windows were no joke either, baby. Each one weighs over 1,000 pounds. That's a big-ass honking fucking window. Gigantic-ass window. Oh, God, that's a hot fucking window. Very fuckable window. Imagine, oh, very fuckable. You imagine taking a shower with that kind of window? <laughs> yeah, I can. Getting it all steamed up? Yeah, it's hot. Whew. In another quirk, the Pentagon is a national historic landmark. This means that any renovations or upgrades to the building can't significantly alter the appearance of the building. 
So the new blast-resistant windows look pretty much the same as the old shitty windows. <laughs> those windows fucking Engineers, suck. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Those windows really don't fucking get me hard at all. No, not even a little. Yeah. No. Engineers also reinforced the structure around the windows, building steel beams into the walls around the window frames and bolting the steel beams to the concrete floors. In addition to these structural enhancements, Wedge 1 also had a new sprinkler system installed in the renovation, which allowed for the fires inside to be put out relatively quickly, further minimizing damage. Wedge 1 was basically designed to withstand a catastrophic attack like the crashing of Flight 77. If the plane had hit anywhere else in the building, the damage would likely have been much worse. In fact, some of the fires from Wedge 1 spread to neighboring Wedge 2, which had yet to be renovated. The fires in Wedge 2 burned sporadically for more than a day. Now let's turn our attention to the final plane crash on 9-11. As a reminder, shortly before the first crash into the World Trade Center, United Airlines Flight 93 lifted off from Newark, New Jersey, headed for the Frisco Bay. At 10.30 a.m., Flight 93 crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, a town in southwestern Pennsylvania, near the Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Maryland borders. The official story of Flight 93 is that it was delayed in its takeoff due to congestion at the Newark airport. It took off only uh, it took off only a few minutes before Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. By the time the hijackers aboard Flight 93, led by Ziad Jarrah, began to take control of the plane, Flight 175 had already crashed into the South Tower. The passengers and crew began to call loved ones, tell them the plane had been hijacked. Their loved ones then informed them of the other attacks. Knowing they were likely part of yet another attack, the passengers and crew decided to revolt against the hijackers and try to take back the plane. While they uh, likely weren't successful in commandeering the plane back from the hijackers, they were successful in getting Flight 93 to miss its intended target, presumably the U.S. Capitol building. The passengers and crew of Flight 93 have rightly been lauded as heroes for their bravery that day, sacrificing their own lives to save the lives of even more innocent people in Washington, D.C. Certainly, that is a movie-worthy story, and in fact, it was made into a movie. United 93 was released in 2006 and chronicles the events aboard Flight 93. Truthers, though, are watching a different movie, probably in a different theater, like like a theater that doesn't show big studio releases at all. You know, in the as of yet unmade movie, uh, flight 93 ways to deceive the public (laughs) flight 93 was shot down by a jet fighter or a missile. The phone calls from the plane to loved ones were all faked by government agents using voice modification technology. In one version of the script, flight 93 was loaded with all the passengers from the other flights that crashed that day, specifically so the U.S. government could shoot the plane down. So let's dig into this speculation. In 2004, a former colonel in the U.S. Army National Guard, Don de Grand Prix, alleged that Flight 93 was shot down by the North Dakota Air Guard. In interest of additional disclosure, these claims were made on the Alex Jones Show. Alex Jones and D. Grand Prix mentioned that the North Dakota Air Guard received awards after 9-11 for their service on 9-11, allegedly for their role in shooting down Flight 93. The globalists gave these guys awards. <laughs> oh my God, he's here. 
De Grand Prix also claims to have worked on a secret commission in the three days following 9-11 to figure out what really happened. According to De Grand Prix, the uh, commission generated an exhaustive 24-page report on the truth about 9-11, which was delivered to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, some of whom De Grand Prix claimed to be friends with and widely distributed to leaders in the U.S. government. In a later interview, De Grand Prix was even named the pilot who fired the Sidewinder missiles that destroyed Flight 93. Now, honestly, there are a few problems with De Grand Prix's claims. While it's true that some fighters from the North Dakota Air Guard were doing training at an Air Force base near Washington, D.C. on 9-11, the pilot named by de Grand Prix was not among them. Instead, the pilot was in Fargo, North Dakota, flying to Boozman, Montana, and Albany, New York, ferrying the director of the New York State Emergency Management Office. On 9-11, there was an emergency management conference in Montana, and the New York State director was in attendance. The pilot left North Dakota for Montana at 10.45 a.m., 42 minutes after Flight 93 crashed. Fargo and Shanksville are about 1,100 miles apart. Not enough time for the pilot to shoot down Flight 93 and be back in Fargo for takeoff. Additionally, it is true that the North Dakota Air Guard received awards for their service on 9-11. They were, they were awards given out by the New York State Emergency Management Office Director to thank them for helping him return to New York to deal with the crisis there. Also, a lot of the people who de Grand Prix claims to know say they have no idea who he is. All right, so maybe the guy de Grand Prix identified didn't shoot down Flight 93. That doesn't mean that it wasn't some other pilot, right? It is true, after all, that two F-15s were scrambled at 9.30 a.m. on 9-11. These fighters, however, were unarmed. The only thing they could have done to stop Flight 93 was to ram into it with the pilots ejecting just before the impact. Apparently, before 9-11, the U.S. military was mostly focused on threats from outside U.S. borders, like the Soviet Union. It was not common for the U.S. to have armed fighter jets ready to scramble because it was believed that there would be ample time to arm fighters and have them take off before the threat reached American shores. Additionally, even if those F-15s were armed, Vice President Cheney didn't give the shoot-down order, that is, an order to shoot down any hijacked planes, until 10.20 a.m., which is after all the planes had already crashed. If one of the F-15s had shot down Flight 93, it would have been it would have been without orders to do so. There's also the matter of the white jet. The white jet. Ooh, it just sounds intriguing. You intrigued, Art? Oh, yeah, the white jet. Guy turns himself into a pickle. I know what you pickle. call your white jet, huh? Huh? My white jet? I... Yeah, you little nasty boy. <laughs> That's you true. shoot a couple white jets into your socks at That's night. That's right. Yeah, all of them. And then I wear them the next day. It's good for the skin. <laughs> um, in the wake of the Flight 93 crash, multiple eyewitness accounts tell of a small white jet flying low over the crash site. Truthers suggest that this white jet actually shot down Flight 93. In fact, there actually was a small white corporate jet in the area of the crash at the time of the crash. The jet was traveling from North Carolina to an airport in Pennsylvania about 20 miles north of Shanksville. The jet was contacted by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and asked to drop altitude and investigate the crash site, which they did. 
Truthers say the jet was cruising at 34,000 feet when asked to do this, a descent which would take 20 minutes to complete. The jet, however, was actually already in descent, preparing for landing at the nearby airport. Rather than 34,000 feet, they were at three or 4,000 feet. All of this has been confirmed by the company that owns the jet and the co-pilot aboard that day. Uh, what about all those phone calls, though, huh, Andy? I can't even make a phone call today on a friggin' airplane. How were these passengers doing this 20 friggin' years ago, huh? Truthers allege that the calls were all staged by government agents. Truthers don't believe that in 2001, you could make a cell phone call from an airplane traveling at the kind of speeds Flight 93 was going at, at the kind of altitude Flight 93 had. Truthers say the government agents used voice masking technology to place uh, calls to loved ones of, of Flight 93's passengers and crew, making them believe they were talking to people actually aboard the flight. While truthers don't supply a lot of evidence to support their claims, wireless technology experts feel like it's plausible that passengers and crew on Flight 93 could have made calls from the plane. Um, Paul Guckian, VP of Engineering for Qualcomm, says that airliners can still get some signal at 30,000 to 35,000 feet. Flight 93 never went higher than 40,700 feet. So for most of its time in the air... It was in range of wireless towers of wireless tower signals. Rick Kemper, director of technology and security at CIDA, the wireless association, says this. It's not a very good connection and it changes a lot. And you end up getting a lot of drop calls because you're moving through cell sites so fast. What Kemper is referring to is a process by which a wireless call is made. Wireless phones pick up the strongest signal from any nearby tower. As the phone moves away from the tower, the phone gets passed to a stronger signal from a different tower. This process is simple at lower speeds, but is much more challenging during high-speed travel like, you know, say, in a jet airliner. In a big old jet airliner. There it is. Can make a call today. Anyway, so basically... It is actually more difficult to maintain a wireless call in a plane because the transfer process to a new tower might need to happen more frequently with less reliability. That said, an important piece of the puzzle turns out to be population density. The more people in a given area, the less area a wireless tower covers. If there is low population density, a wireless tower might cover a much larger area. A larger coverage area means your phone doesn't have to connect to new towers as frequently, which means less chance for a dropped call in the process. Many of the calls placed by people aboard Flight 93 were short. The plane was also traveling over rural areas and wasn't flying particularly high. All these factors contribute to making actual phone calls from board the plane possible that day. Another sticking point for truthers, aside from ooey-gooey Werther's original chewy caramels, is the debris. These truthers are obsessed with debris. And I'm not talking about a wet beef sandwich from New Orleans either. I mean, sure, I'm thinking about a wet beef po' boy from the Big Easy. Andy, I hate to say it, but I think you're obsessed with debris. Beef debris po' boy was an inside job, Art. Inside my tummy, that is. Anywho, what about those Flight 93 debris? It has routinely been alleged that the crash site for Flight 93 is very large, like 
too large. Pentagon holes are too small and Flight 93 crash, crash site is too big. Why can't anything be the correct damn size? God, it's so frustrating. Truthers claim that one of the engines from the plane was over a mile away from the impact crater. There were also reports of wreckage and even human remains at nearby Indian Lake, which is supposedly six miles away from the site of impact. All this, truthers say, indicates that Flight 93 was breaking apart before it made it before it's made it made its main collision with the ground. Yet more proof that Flight 93 was shot down. Similar to the other crashes, the impact was hard on Flight 93. Much of the plane was completely destroyed by the impact. Some pieces of the wreckage ended up as much as 30 feet underground. The plane left a crater that was upwards of 50 feet wide. That said, one of the fans from one of Flight 93's engines was found 300 yards away from the crater. To be fair, 300 yards is only about one-fifth of a mile, not over a mile. Is this normal, though? For a substantial part of the plane to be so far away from where it crashed? According to a former National Transportation Safety Board investigator, Greg Faith, yes. Faith says that plane crashes typically happen at lower speeds when planes are taking off or landing. This leaves most of the plane's wreckage pretty intact. At a higher rate of speed, though, there's more opportunity for parts of the plane to be launched further away on impact. Faith says, Faith says it's also important th that Flight 93 did not hit the ground straight on, but was on its back when it crashed. According to Faith, this makes it more likely that parts of the plane would have been jettisoned further from the crater. And let's not forget about Indian Lake. What about the reports of parts of wreckage and remains of the passengers at this site that's six miles away? Well... Just first of all, Indian Lake isn't six miles away. It's less than two miles away. It's six miles away if you go into your favorite map app. Now, I don't know the names of the apps because I use the only map you'll ever need, Rand McNally's 1999 Motor Carrier's Road Atlas. As the crow flies, though, Indian Lake is fewer than two miles from the impact crater. With respect to human remains, the Somerset County Coroner Wallace Miller says that all human remains were within a 70-acre area surrounding the impact crater. What did end up at Indian Lake were small parts of sheet metal from the plane, paper, and other light debris, which would have been blown up into the sky during the crash. Well, that's it, bunk funkers. We've stuffed your tummies pretty full of whole enchilada over these last two episodes, haven't we? With this, we hope we've answered, we hope we've helped to answer the age-old question. 9-11, 9-11, what went down at Building 7? But where do we go from here? Are we any closer to unlocking all the mysteries surrounding 9-11? It's nothing new, it's not a mystery. Check, our, check out our discussion immediately following. Immediately following... Hey, welcome back, Bunk Funkers. That was our research of 9 11 Part 2 The Buildings. The Pentagon! Buildings. Pentagon! 
<laughs> Andy, there's a million reasons why I don't believe it. <laughs> Fire's not hot enough. No way hot enough to bring them down. What a fucking jam. You don't have to be a truther to know that song fucking slaps. Martin Oaks, great song. Um... Well, Andy, you know, this was, this is kind of a big one. I think this is the, uh, I I mean, let's, you know, I guess we can talk about some blanket theories, blanket thoughts, but what do you think? I think let's maybe take a minute, a quick minute here to compare part two with part one. How much, I mean, I think part two is really kind of the surface level stuff that maybe a lot of people think of when they think about, um, the 9-11 conspiracy. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right, Art. I think that part two, the building stuff, is is kind of what became famous a lot of ways. Uh, or, you know, I think you said this before. It's like memeable um, stuff for the most part. And I think that the real, probably the real substance, I think you and I kind of both feel this way. The real substance in the conspiracy angle is with the false flag rather than with all the stuff at the buildings specifically the building stuff like i mean you know we don't want to put the cart before the horse here or put the whatever um put the steel before the beam uh, put the therm the fucking thermo thermite reaction before the fucking steel um but i mean i don't know it's Building stuff for me personally, I think, gets in the way of having a real discussion about, you know, what happened with that attack and how we answered it. You know what I'm saying? Very fair. I I agree with that. You it know, muddies we, the mean, water to, almost. To, what's up? It muddies the water almost. Yeah. Yeah, and not to give too much away, but we actually received an email, a very kind, very well-written email from a uh, from from someone uh, who who had just discovered the show, and um, a new bunk funker, a new baby bunk funker, a new baby bunk funker, a diaper born. dandy bunk funker, um, and they kind of were urging us not actually to cover this portion of the conspiracy because. You know, and I think the gist of their email was just that a lot of this is just, it's truth, the truth, it gives the truth or community a bad name, and it totally stands in defiance of logic, reason, and science. Would you agree that that is the gist of that person's email? I don't want to speak wrongly on their behalf. Um, Yeah, and uh, thank you, David, for the email, by the way. Um but yeah, I I agree with that art. I think that I think probably the thesis of that of that message was that a lot of the stuff that we talked about today um, makes makes truthers seem a certain way and hinders people from asking the real important questions about some of the things that happened surrounding nine eleven uh, and gets them focused on things that um, aren't grounded in science or reasonable logic 
uh, it's yeah. it's so far out in the ether that you've you've lost the tether with the important things about nine eleven. You know, and they, and they write it very well. And just to give you an example, they say the 9-11 truth movement, like any movement based around a conspiracy theory, is necessarily amateur and speculative. And generally, its audience isn't trained in science, basic research skills, critical thinking, or how to properly form questions that can produce relevant answers. Now, we fit into that category as well. I mean, we're fucking, we're not eggheads. We're we're low-functioning adults <laughs> at best. They continue to say certain bad faith actors, which is a really, I like that phrase. I'm going to, we're going to start using that phrase. We're bad (laughs) faith actors. We've we've both been Dick Wolf. We are both bad faith actors. So yeah, we both have been stand-ins for Faith Hill before on various sets and we were very bad at it. Not believable, even a little bit. I mean, and, and then we had a long stint on, um, uh, seventh heaven and we had a lot of bad faith on that show as well yeah it's very so, true very bad faith actors here he said they say certain bad faith actors cop capitalize on the scientific illiteracy of the mass movement to push dubious theories and introduce quote stylized facts that promote quote beneficial cognitive diversity um and then they cite some other some some other papers and whatnot and 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 i think you know i think david you know i unfortunately david your your email well you know what we don't need to to get in too much to we're not going to have a response to a listener right here on the air uh but you know we 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 felt that you know, well one we had done all the research we do what bunker wants us to do we'd done all the research um already and i think you know it is important maybe not important that's probably putting in a little too high but it's i guess important relevant to our show and what we do to discuss the the whole enchilada right that's what we're here to do yeah uh yeah and you know the points the points raised about some of the things we talked about are are very valid but i do feel like that the stuff here is is part of the whole enchilada. It is. I mean, and this is the big stuff. This is what we have an audience to think, but we have all the bunk bunkers to think about. And, um, you know, we want to give them the whole, the kind of the baseline, you know, and it's just like with JFK. Like there's a lot of stuff that we missed on JFK. There's stuff that we missed on MK ultra, our first episode. And they totally deserve follow-ups that we can definitely get to with tons of other theories and considerations, you know, I mean, we're one year in um, yeah. the next year. All we're going to do is redo every episode. And <laughs> yeah. This is the lineup, guys. Each, I mean, this is what you're going to get forever in perpetuity because we'll never do it right because that's not our style to do things right. Yeah. We do them just to do them. Yeah, we do them wrong um, right. on purpose. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree that I think the building trutherism stuff you know, I'm going to be honest, it really doesn't hold, it doesn't hold, uh, doesn't hold water for me personally, you know? Yeah. It's um, like, what were we compelled by in doing this research? I mean, not much, right? I no, mean, not even a the, little bit. The, the, um, um, the, the, the basis for a lot of these arguments is, is just to, uh, I think this was, um, author Phil Molay 
said this about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, um, that some truthers just sort of ignore the evidence, um, ask startling questions, and then just piece together some kind of explanation for them, yeah. assuming the worst case scenario. <laughs> so, yeah. and I think, yeah. I think a lot of this stuff, it, it fits into that category where there's almost a, a, a willful ignorance toward actual evidence in favor of some something more fantastical that helps fit a bigger overall narrative that there's stylized facts. Yeah, stylized facts. It's a great way to say it. You know, and I think a big problem with all this building shit is, is like you do kind of need advanced degrees or some have some kind of knowledge of stuff about engineering and buildings and architecture and and shit to really understand this. Like you needed to sit there and wait until fucking 2008 or whenever they put out the, the, um, the building seven document, or, you know, you had to wait a little while before the fucking, uh, the twin towers documents came out or their commission report or all these other things. And it's like the way truthers kind of frame it. And obviously, you know, we don't mean all truthers, but you know, what do we mean? Um, it, it's kind of convincing. You're like, you know, you're like, yeah, I could totally see that. A bomb would probably topple a building. Big bomb go boom. Big bomb go boom. Building go down. But then, you know, the researchers kind of come in and explain the science. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of see that too. So it really can mess with your head because it just kind of becomes this like semantic argument instead of like what it really is, which is like, the nature of our physical reality versus things that are just made up. Right. It could really be space beams. Like it could, you know, the fire is just a hypothesis in a way, in the same way that gravity is right. Like it could have been space beams. Like, you know, I don't know. It could have been, I mean, we could, you know, there's, you could make that argument about anything though. Right. Like, (laughs) I suppose this is one of those cases where, the absolute definitive answer to the question will never be delivered because yeah. <laughs> we all we can all we can make it make a determination on is based on what evidence exists and you know for space beams no evidence exists same thing with a, a nuke there's no evidence to back it up there's there's, none. there's no real evidence other than to back people up. being like well nukes go fucking boom and those buildings went boom yeah exactly it's like I, you know, the buildings would have been... You're telling me they where, pancaked? I didn't see one fucking piece of syrup. Where, where was the butter? Where was you the know, butter? Where was used, the syrup? If they used a nuke, those floors would have been vaporized. Not There would be radiation poisoning over the entire financial district. I really did go on that. It's I forget. You can look it up. It's like nuclear... Uh, destruction just google nuclear destruction you don't have to go to google to google this either you could just google it from your home <laughs> yeah, um yeah just do it from home um nuclear destruction map thing like tester you'll find it it's some website and you can literally like pick the kind of nuke like you can do the fat boy you can do the bomb the bomb they dropped on hiroshima you can do the biggest nuke ever detonated on Earth, the biggest nuke ever detonated by the U.S. Tons of stuff. So I looked at a few different nukes. I looked at, they have one that's like 
a small terrorist nuke, which I think is like a hundred suitcase ton, nuke, a hundred tons of dynamite. Wait, what'd you say? A suitcase nuke, a suitcase nuke. Um, and then there's like a few others, and even the smallest quote terrorist one. I mean, would have leveled the the fireball destruction, and then the the sound wave destruction of a nuclear blast is just it is so fucking massive and destructive it Mm -hmm. would have destroyed so much more than what was destroyed on 9-11 and there would have been radiation just like covering all of that like the financial district is on that like southern end of uh manhattan the island of manhattan yeah or whatever the fuck it is i don't know your boroughs it's an island islands in the stream that is what manhattan is um and like a nuke just would have decimated so much of that area i mean all of like liberty street there and like wherever the other cross streets like so much shit would have been destroyed yeah if a nuke had gone off we wouldn't be asking about what happened at building seven because building seven would have been completely destroyed yeah i i get it though Because you're like, well, controlled demolitions are how buildings fall down like that. But, I mean, when you really look at it, like. How often do we see a building fall over on its side, though? I mean, not not a lot. They really do kind of fall in place because that's how they're designed to fall. Yeah. The, The like. The towers didn't even fall perfectly into their own footprint like it would have with a controlled no. demolition and I mean, they that's moved why, yeah, yeah a little bit yeah they sli- you know it's like some of the stuff like falls off to the side a little bit but it's not you know i, I think that the saying that a built an office building is mostly air makes so much sense it's like yeah of course that is so much different than a tree because you can't just like push if you push a building I mean, how much force would you need to knock over a building? Like, you'd need a lot of force. You need so much fucking force. And these things are like... I mean, I tried built- to actually run some fucking egghead numbers, and I'm not an egghead. I'm not. Yeah, you, I'm sure you were not successful in that. And if you were... No, I wasn't. Uh, I would be revoking your Chad card, okay? Yeah. Well, you can't. I'm not going to let you revoke my fucking Chad card because I'm a straight-up fucking Chad. Mm, not if okay. you're an egghead. Eggheads can't be Chad. I co-host a podcast, dude. I'm hogged out, and I co-host a podcast. I'm a Chad. Mm-hmm. Eggheads can't be Chad's. So the fucking plane that hit uh, the South Tower was traveling at like 450 miles per hour and it moved the building what it what it said like 27 inches. Yeah, 27 inches. So I was like, okay, you need to move building seven. It said like 70 feet for it to topple over its center of gravity. Yeah. And so 70 feet is like, I don't know how many inches, like fucking... Some crazy number, and it, basically uh, the number I got be, was like it would you be need like six hundred inches. Yeah, you need like thirty-one planes. Yeah. Now, of course, the all the real physicists, all the real science and eggheads who listen to the show, which there's probably only a few, but um, the real eggheads are like, well, not actually, because there's a lot of other physical principles going on. It's like. The distance apart, like how, where are they striking? Are they striking the same area? Like it, 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 it only makes sense in a vacuum. But 
Yeah, but it's like if we say we take that one particular crash and we isolate it. Yeah. You know, it'd have to happen 30 times. I mean, 20, all at once. All at once. Seven inches. It's not like you could do seven inches. That's it. 30 That's in succession it and it would work. It's, you'd have to do like 30 all at once to knock the building over. Right. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, these things are fucking designed. Like, you can't just put a fucking skyscraper up without spending copious amounts of time making sure it doesn't fall over. Yeah. I mean, people are stupid, but honestly, the people who build buildings are not that fucking stupid because they can't be. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the people who do anything in, like, public works or, like, electricians, it's like... Us in our day-to-day jobs or like anyone else is like, oh yeah, I could fuck up a couple of times here and there and it's fine. But it's like, if you're I an electrician, all the time you and can't no, fuck nobody up. notices. Oh yeah, we fuck up this podcast all the time, but yeah. <laughs> electricians can't fuck up because if they fuck up, they burn someone's house down or they kill themselves or they, you know, they're working up on one of the transformers and they get shocked and they fucking die. Like you yeah. can't fuck up on that job. You literally yeah. cannot. Or you will lose the job or your life. Same with buildings. Same with people who do fucking public works. All this shit, you know? And you know, it is interesting too that, you know, they didn't account for the the fire because that's that's really the biggest thing is that this jet fuel. That's crazy. You know, everyone, we obviously we talked about it in the research, but, you know, the jet fuel is like when the plane crashes, like that creates this like fireball of jet fuel and the and real problem I mean, it's getting it hot fast that's the thing is like all this it's flammable hot. shit like paper everywhere in an office this building this was 2001. In 2001 everything was paper yeah this was still paper all that I stuff mean, think about it two years flames. earlier fucking y2k happened yeah think and about that think about that 2001 stuff- were people even using credit cards that often um, yeah they probably were yeah yeah <laughs> i credit card was it's not that recent of an invention um, or the 80s is when they had those weird credit cards where you had to like put them in the machine then you do the you know well the credit cards were the same it's just that the they didn't you know you couldn't swipe it in the 80s regardless people still did checks way but there was an online payment shit that there is today yeah, everything stuff paper. would have been in like it's it's nascent stages um and trust me but like that stuff these is fucking so government agencies oh my god they keep paper records of everything even still to this day there are paper record listen i'm not gonna say how or why i know this but let's just say that in certain positions in the government they will have you if you're working on a project they may or may not make a student intern for that position <laughs> print out thousands and thousands and thousands of emails. I'm being 100% serious. Thousands of them. Print them into paper and then store them in the records area. Yeah. Thousands of them related to a project. Yeah. So there's a lot of paper. Yeah. I mean, like... Someone call fucking Michael Scott because there's a lot of paper going on over here. Yeah, this is like Blunder Mifflin. <laughs> but then the Blunder the Mifflin. Plane. Now that was your Paul Blart Mall Cop Office crossover fan fiction, right? Blunder Mifflin. <laughs> yeah, I uh, 
I sent that one to Ricky Drew. the other crossover that I worked on, Blunder Mifflin. Yeah. It's about a bunch of fuckable moms working at Dunder Mifflin who also moonlight as mall cops. Right. Yeah. We sent both of these spec scripts to Ricky Gervais and never heard back. Well, Dick Wolf, you better get ready because we're sending them your way too, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Work this into Chicago Fire. Um, I mean, who who doesn't want to work for a guy named Dick Wolf? I mean, that guy, that is the most Chad name ever. He's king of the Chads. Yeah. That's why he's at all the meetings. Yeah. He runs the meeting. That's true. Council of Chads. Anyway, Andy, as you were saying, the fire. Don't forget, too, that the plane cut a big hole in the building. So oh, big there's hole. just oxygen streaming in, like stoking the flames. Perfect uh, situation for a fire. Yeah. It's it's enclosed inside the building, but there's this nice little bellow that is just and 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 people forget that like we're way up at the top of the skyscraper. It's windy as fuck up there. Yeah, there's no it's, there's no there's no wind breaks that high up. We've been up to the top of the Empire State Building together. It is so holding windy hands up there. <laughs> holding hands. The uh <laughs> <laughs> True story. The elevator that go went up to the observation deck was broken that day, so we walked there from like the eighty third floor, I think, of the of the Empire State Building. Really? Yeah, we climbed Did those we stairs. Have to walk? Yeah, we climbed the stairs. Oh God, I can't remember. Yeah, you probably blacked out. Your legs were burning. Oh yeah, but I remember how windy it was. It was insanely yeah. windy up there. I mean, it's so windy. You can you can barely talk to people. It's so windy. So you've got this hole, and then it's like a little cave, and there's just tons of air being able to move into this hot uh, kerosene-laced fire. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect environment for a fire. Yeah, without a doubt. And, I, I mean, I, I just, I, I have to wonder... Did Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, did Osama bin Laden, did they imagine that this is how it would happen? Or do you think that when the plane crashed, they were like, well, that didn't work. But then half an hour (laughs) later, they're like, oh, shit, it worked. Oh, hell yeah, dude. (laughs) Um, We did it, bro. Um, I don't know. We kind of discussed it in part one that that one dude who did a bunch of the bombings for Al-Qaeda was like, and he was like fucking bomb obsessed. This dude was like, I mean, playing Bomberman on his, you know, Super Nintendo. Loved bombs. Total oh, bomb freak. I love that Bomberman game. Oh, yeah. Bomberman's pretty fun. Yeah. This guy loved Bomberman too. And he would go do tight fives at uh, comedy clubs just to bomb. He loved bombs. <laughs> and even the dude who loved bombs was like, yo. Bombs suck. Use planes. So yeah, that, I had to think these dudes were experts in blowing shit up and they were like, planes are so much easier. I just wonder though, I mean, obviously the goal was to get the buildings to collapse. I mean, that's what they tried to do in 1993 with the the car bomb in the basement is they thought the towers would collapse. Obviously that didn't, that didn't happen at all in 93. I just wonder if they went into this having this expectation that, oh, we'll crash the plane into the side of the building 
these fires will ignite all of this flammable material in the building that will weaken the support structure, which will lead to a collapse. Or if their thought process, this is, this is a totally irrelevant, I guess, even thread of thought, but I can't help but thinking about it. Or did they just a really great thought experiment Yeah, to do with kids and on Sunday school? Yeah. Uh, if you know, if any, we have any teachers listening, try this with your Zoom class. Um, <laughs> try to get in the know, mind Andy. of Osama bin Laden. Or did they? Uh, or were they just thinking like 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 any lay person does that? Oh, big plane go boom into big building, big building fall over. That's what I think, honestly. That's what I think. I kind of think that too. I think so big I, plane go boom. Because if you tell me like in in an isolated incident, oh, this big fucking plane crashed into a building. I'm probably going to be like, oh, shit, like, like, it fell over or some shit, right? Like, I'm not, like, my first instant isn't like, oh, shit, the building topples in place. I am I get it. I'd be like, oh, shit, that building, the a plane hitting a building, that would probably make the building fall over like a Jenga tower. I get it. I get why that is the inkling. Um, But when I, when I watched it live, when I watched these buildings collapse live in 2001... And maybe this says a lot about me as a person more than it does anything. Oh God. I didn't have this thought of like, that's not how that should happen. That's not how that should happen. It was like, it was just more about like, oh my God, this building's collapsing. I mean, I think that makes you a normal person, which I, <laughs> you're I'm probably shocked to hear it. that more than, yeah, than anything. Yeah. But it, uh, I mean, it didn't. It didn't strike me as being the like real. That's the real fucking thing I want to investigate. Yeah, investigate how I could have had a normal thought. <laughs> but I didn't um, feel. I didn't feel that way. Like watching it, that oh, these should fall over I, instead of yeah, just falling down. Because to I don't me, get it. I, I I don't get it. To They're me, just obsessed with controlled demolition. Yeah, and everybody talks about the floors free falling and stuff and how it looks like a demolition. And it's like, to me, it's like, I don't know, pancaking floors just, that's what makes sense to me. You know, these yeah. buildings sustain severe structural damage. There's raging fires inside. The support structure gets weakened and the floors just start to like fall onto each other and it starts a chain reaction. Like, I mean, that's what it looks like to me when I watch the video. Uh, to me, I don't see, I mean, I can see where there's, where you look at it against a controlled demolition and there are similarities, but yeah. to say that it's exactly the same, that it looks exactly the same, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't. No, because I think when you look at the 9-11 footage, um, the 9-11 footage it looks like the top. It, it looks like it's crashing from the top down, mm-hmm. like it's crumpling from the top down. But like, yeah, controlled demolition footage looks like it's being sucked into a pit, you know, or like there's a vortex in the bottom and the building is slowly just going down an elevator or something. You know what I'm saying? I think like, the way it looks is it looks like everything inside the building is falling in a controlled demolition. It looks like everything inside the building is like falling at the exact same time and the outside is just sort of like being dragged along for the yeah. ride. And that's what it looks like to me when you look at a controlled demolition. But the the World Trade Center, it, it's it's like sequential, you know? 
Yes, it does, yes, it's not. It's not yes. just. It's not just everything collapsing all at once. It's like dunk, 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 dunk. Because it's like yes, in a controlled demolition, that takes time to happen. But it's like you can see when you look at it that it looks like the building just sort of crumples. Like you said, it's like there's a vortex at the bottom, and everything just starts to move at the same time. And that doesn't. Yeah, that's not how the World Trade Center footage looks to me. No, or yeah, Building Seven. I, I agree, and I think honestly, and here's the thing, and it's weird that this is like kind of the thing that really, you know, I mean, not that I had any really shred of doubt, but let's say I was at like ninety nine point nine percent. But the thing that pushes me over the edge here, oh yeah, is um, Tell is them. the sound, is the sound. We live in Chicago, Andy, and every year, assuming there isn't a worldwide quarantine pandemic but every year the air and water show takes place in our fair city does it not (laughs) and every year they fucking practice downtown before the show and every year what do you hear you hear the booming echoes sounds of jet planes being ricocheted all you hear it everywhere you hear it on the oh i just hit my mic sorry you hear it you hear it all over downtown everywhere for those of you you could be miles away and you will hear these jet planes ricocheting off the wall for those for those who don't know for those who aren't chicagoans uh the aaron water show happens at the uh the oak street beach the north street beach north avenue beach um and the it has like a lot of different like airplanes and stuff doing aerial tricks like blue angels blue angels come and stuff like that and they do like trick flying it's pretty fucking cool they fly like I mean, you want to talk about some real fucking pilots like those those people are real. That's what real flying looks like. Yeah, it, it's neat. People are flying upside down, banking and then doing it in perfect synchronicity. All five of them. It's awesome. Um, But the as they're doing these maneuvers, Chicago is is literally right on the lakeshore. And so they're doing this stuff. So, you know, as they have to make like turns and things, they sometimes have to go over the city center in order to do that. So, you know, people like us who work in the downtown areas of Chicago, it's like, I mean, like you said, you can just hear the, the roar of the engines, uh, all through, all through the city. You are miles away from them and it sounds like they're flying right above you and you look around like an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe yeah. you're sitting on the street corner. You got a big bag of pot bellies. You're going to go fucking, scarf that shit down you know with your uh side of cup of chili or maybe i'm feeling like having chips that day so yeah either one of those and uh you know i'm gonna go scarf that shit down and you're standing there in the street corner you're yeah that's what it sounds like but bigger and uh it's just ricocheting everywhere so when i think about that i'm like if they're if there were controlled demolitions of the, all those buildings, because it's not just one and two, five, six, and seven, four, five, six, and seven. And there's a three, right? Yeah. I think three went down too. Um, yeah, pretty assume. much. Pretty Well, and and not only that, but it's like buildings across the street and stuff. Yes. Were also there was uh, some damaged. schools across the street that suffered severe damage. I mean, some of these buildings that were not even part of the World Trade Center complex had to be demolished because yeah. the damage uh, from the collapse was so extensive. So 
does it make sense to say that building seven needed explosives to be demolished um, when these buildings that were further away suffered such extensive damage to me, that doesn't make sense. It seems makes makes more sense to say, Oh yeah. Building seven was probably damaged in this horribly catastrophic building collapse. But, but, but think about all the explosions they would need. Cause you don't, it's not just like one fucking explosion. You need to put, you would need to put controlled explosive devices on so many different support beams. But then at the same, and then launch them 10 minutes or like what? Like 15 minutes after the planes hit the towers because you cannot deny that the planes hit the fucking towers. Like, right. We have footage of it. There's video footage. Um, and and the, there's video footage of the buildings being have giant holes that are on fire with plumes of smoke coming out. So you can never deny. There's no way you can deny. And that's why we didn't even include any of it. That like, I think there's theories that like these planes had bombs on them. They didn't mm-hmm. like, it's like all this stupid shit. It's just like, the planes hit the towers. Okay, so then we have to assume uh, there's that also 15 the idea minutes after a bunch of people are in the basement, remote control operating pre-placed uh, explosive devices. And you're going to tell me that nobody in the all of New York heard those giant explosions going off. I think you one, would hear them. You would I hear think- them. I think you have a ton of people being like, I heard mass, I heard a massive explosion and then the tower went, fell down. Everybody was looking at it. Yeah. And I think, except for the one guy who was probably like, what the fuck? Why is Subway closed? I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm trying to buy a hot dog on the street out of this, this metal box that's really warm. This hot metal box. water. There's no vendor. Where's the vendor? Come on. <laughs> it's 9 a.m. Like, I need uh, my hot dog. <laughs> have you ever seen that like image? I think it's of like an Antifa protest. And there's like a dude on a cell phone. Or maybe it's like some other kind of protest. And there's a dude on Occupy? a cell phone just like waiting for the bus. <laughs> just no. like, geez, this fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like he's in the that. middle of a protest and he's just like, oh, fuck gonna be late <laughs> i'm gonna catch this bus <laughs> i gotta go i gotta go meet my fucking wife to get divorced Jeez. <laughs> she's digging me out for dinner to divorce me <laughs> to divorce me at dinner jeez my favorite go restaurant. restaurant jeez on my birthday on my birthday jeez my wife Take my wife, please. Soon to be ex-wife. Ooh. Oh boy, that, that guy is like everyone else is just like shocked, horrified, what's going on. He's just like trying to do bits. <laughs> they're like, oh god. They're like the dude on nine eleven who there. There's a there's a terribly dark sketch for you. The dude on nine eleven who uh, can't can't stop himself from doing bits. That's <laughs> <laughs> why it was a good thing that we weren't. Uh, comedians in 2001 yeah um but again the the sound stuff really like 
that's kind of where I'm just like, you just, you don't have enough physical proof. You don't have enough. And you know, what's interesting though, when we talk about explosions is that I think a lot of the eyewitnesses and stuff use the word explosions to describe like loud sounds that they heard. And I think that truthers kind of coagulate around those descriptions, but it's, it's like these people are just like in chaos, complete chaos in Manhattan at the time. And the news reporters talking to them and it's like, yeah, the plane hitting the tower is like an explosion, but that doesn't mean it's a bomb. And who knows what was in the building that these floors are collapsing. There's probably little explosions as stuff is getting like crushed under the weight of all this concrete and steel. Uh, I mean, like if you have a little, I don't know, fucking computer, maybe it explodes. I don't know. Uh, what happens when you crush it in a floor? Uh, all this electrical <laughs> stuff that's in the building. So maybe there water were pipes are in the building. You know those fucking pop pop. Yeah, but like you said, this concussive blast of a controlled demolition doesn't. It's not there. It's just not there. Yeah, you know, you have the people like Barry Jennings. I mean, he describes it as explosions, but it's like. How do we know what Barry actually saw or what he means? You know, it's like to him, it was an explosion, but does mm-hmm. it, like he's not, <laughs> he's not like no clipping through the world like Minecraft where he can like be like, well, I looked at it from this angle and I clearly saw it's like he was in a, I mean, I can't even imagine. First of all, I mean, kudos to the guy for. I mean, he was part of the emergency management team and he ran back into his building. I don't know to do what, I guess, to help manage an emergency. Yeah. I can't imagine the chaos and stress that he was probably in. And then he's in there with uh, his coworker, Michael Hess, and they're fucking like, who knows what they're trying to do? And then he's like, yeah, I heard an explosion. It's like, okay, that's not evidence. That's his take. That's anecdotal Stuff, And I'm not trying to shit on fucking Barry Jennings because God knows certain people in the truth of community have done that to his poor family already. Right. You know, but you're, uh, you're right. We can't, we can't reverse engineer Barry Jennings experience on that day. I mean, we can't, should, should Barry have talked to loose change? I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know what the producers said to him to get him to be on the movie. Did he know what he was saying? Did he know what kind of movie they were making? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they went up to him and said, hey, we're making a movie about 9-11. We know you were in on it. You want to just let us know what happened that day? Yeah. And they just used the parts of him saying explosion. It's like he obviously, a few years later, recanted those state. Well, not recanted, but said, I don't like the way they portrayed me and what yeah. they said about me. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say what people were experiencing at that time. You know, I, I mean, and I, I don't know. It's, it's like, like you said, it's a stressful situation. He was undoubtedly under so much pressure at that moment. Like your brain's probably struggling to keep up and you probably did hear something. And yeah, maybe it was a, an explosion type sound. But like you said, it's, it's not evidence. It's not proof. It's, it's just what you experienced, but it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, there's so much going on. I mean, it's like sirens were probably going on 20, like nonstop yelling. Um, 
I mean, I, I think people who don't live in a big city don't realize how much sound carries. Like, even if you're like really high up in a building, um, you can still p- hear people yelling on the street below. Yeah. If they're yelling loud enough. I mean, it really does ricochet off the buildings. Yeah. Um, build- buildings will carry the sound. I mean, sirens. You'll hear sirens like they're right next to you. Ambulance, yeah. you know. And, and sirens is like a good example because it, the way it bounces, it's like you can't accurately, you can't really tell where a siren's coming from in when you're in like a place like the financial district because the sounds like ricochet. So again, it's like we don't, we don't have any idea what Barry Jennings actually heard. What was the source of the thing that he heard? We don't know. And who knows? We, we will never know. Yeah. Um, now, Andy, you had a point that you said you wanted to bring up that um, was just going to knock me off my socks. <laughs> well, I don't know that I said it in that terms, but you said it was going to make me shit my pants and fucking go cry home to my mommy. That's correct. Uh, that is what I said. Um, you say that about everything. Art, when we when we looked into this hypothesis that Shakespeare didn't write his own plays. Oh, and how uh, disgusting was that? that was, I can't believe we besmirched the great name of him, William yeah. Shakespeare. I know you found that personally offensive, um, as did a lot of our bunk funker listeners. But that's how they find every episode, honestly, personally oh, yeah. offensive. And that's how they find our personalities. <laughs> and that's they're not wrong. Um, when we were doing the research for that episode, and we talked about it in the, the that episode, that there was a quote. And I'm just going to be paraphrasing here uh, about about anti Stratfordians, uh, so people who don't believe Shakespeare wrote all his own plays, uh, that said that basically that anti Stratfordians see a lack of evidence to corroborate Shakespeare, and so their answer to that problem is to pick possible people who wrote the plays of Shakespeare for whom there exists absolutely no evidence at all um and i feel that that's almost an analogous situation to some of the like claims that we talked about today where especially something like the pentagon uh or flight 93 where people say this evidence doesn't add up to me you know what i think it was this thing for which there's even less evidence than the thing that's got me concerned (laughs) And, yeah. and and I think that that's uh, true too for the the World Trade Center conspiracies to an extent. I mean, that's my I, point. I think I agree with you. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. Um, and I agree where it's like, yeah, there's there's no uh, there's no like it's like it's that's that's how people come up with things like nuke or space beam. Like it's just like yeah. well. Your your theory doesn't make sense to me, and so it was a beam from space that turned everything into dust. You know, like, you okay. Get, you got to hand it to these people, though. Shoot your shot. You know, shoot you your only shot. Got one chance to say space beams did it, and yeah. this is your chance. Space beams did it. Space beams did it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I get it. I get being skeptical of the government. I I think that. 
again, and you know, we kind of talked about this in part one is I think that a lot of the truther community kind of is the truther community and many people who are both, you know, skeptical of the federal government or skeptical of our reaction to 9 11 or skeptical of the war in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I think they're all kind of maybe reaching the same ends, but their means to get there uh, are very different. And some in the truth of the community can be very hurtful. But I think in the end of the day, it's like they're kind of trying to reach the same means or the same ends, but they just go back, go about it by a different means, you know? True. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes tr- that makes that makes sense to me. I think they're, that- they're mad about the same things. They're just going about it a different way, and so you know, anyway, <laughs> I was waiting for something really poignant there. No, no, never do that with me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. A long time. You're gonna be waiting for Godot. Yeah, but you're gonna be waiting for Art Doe. I'll be waiting for a good day and a half for you to get through that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that Go you're ahead. right. I think that I think that all truthers ultimately are in pursuit of the same, the answer to the same question. But the methods that they utilize and the things that they focus on are pretty varied, and the things that some people get really deep into are are odd. In my estimation, yeah. it seems like a weird thing to get hung yeah. up on sometimes. And there are issues within the, you know, the conspiracy community at large with, well, you know, believing these things like it, it like we, we've, we say it time and time again, there's, there's kernels of truth in every conspiracy theory and story that we cover. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how much they stretch that truth right yeah and um, you know even I, within 9-11 there are kernels of truth everywhere and i think what david said is true that i think especially with uh you know people who especially believe a lot of different wide array of of like conspiracy hypotheses there are, i think a lot of times on this show we end up talking about you know what science has to say about the things that people believe and there's this divide to me between science and belief and a belief is just something that you hold regardless of what any amount of facts or evidence tells you and then science is reacting to that evidence and i think a lot of times what we see in the show is that these hypotheses get out of hand because people refuse to interact with what they get in a scientific way. They have a belief and they don't let evidence impact it at all. <laughs> they've, right. they've made up their mind and you're not going to change it. And if they approached it with the attitude that, you know, I'm going to allow myself to be affected by this evidence. And I'm going to think critically about this evidence and how it fits in the framework of the things that I already believe and then adjust my beliefs based on that, you know, there probably would be like, we would probably have a smaller episode today. Honestly, <laughs> we would save everybody so much time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause I mean, I mean, I get it. I get that train of thought because you know, 
I'm thoroughly convinced that sleeping with your socks on is a federal crime and should be punishable. <laughs> um, and that people who sleep with socks on just, I don't know. I, 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 I seem to think that maybe they're probably either extraterrestrials or some kind of reptilian race because um, I don't know any good human beings that sleep with socks on. That being said, um, I also think that there is like, you know, in some ways I think it's to to piggyback off your point. It's like, and I think it's, it's fine to like question the scientific answers that, that uh, are trying to alter your belief. Let's use that word alter or add different evidence to a different claim for your belief. Right. But, and I think it's fine to question that and to make science have to prove it. Um, because they get, you know, they they're gonna do their best job in the most logical, reasonable way, and that's the way that you can find good science, good research, is that they cover all their stops, right? So, I don't know. I, I mean, I think you're right. At the end of the day, that's all I wanted to hear. Um, and that's our episode for today. Uh, okay, hang on. <laughs> and I think what what uh what David said as well is a lot of there's a lot of bad faith actors. There are, there's a lot of money to be made in the conspiracy game. Yeah, there is. Sorry, there's money to be made. You can easily have your own show, your own radio show. You can sell supplements. You can sell merchandise. You can sell ad space. You can sell um, all sorts of stuff. And you can, and you don't have to research or do anything. You can just sit. Well, I shouldn't say research, but because you really do have to read a lot of stuff to. To showcase, like, hey, I'm in the know. I know what's going on. Yeah. But, and then you also have to good, have good production value. Um, but there's money to be made. I'm sorry. It, it is a, um, it's a market and there's a market for it. I mean, it, it is worth mentioning that Don DeGrand Prix, uh, while he was on Alex Jones, uh, discussing about how, um, you know, specifically what, what, theory he espoused is that the planes were remote controlled and flown into the world trade center towers via remote control through some device that they attached on to the belly of the plane that you can allegedly see in photographs that the belly of the plane looks weird and that's how they controlled it remotely um right 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 and this his uh like the whole time he's talking to Alex Jones, um, he keeps going back to like, I can't talk about this now. It's all in my book. It's in my book. It's in my book. It's in my yep. book. And he wrote like a yep. series of uh, four books. I think it's called Barbarians Within the Gates or something like that series. Um, and it's all about this okay. kind of like. Is it going to be fantasy role playing? Uh, <laughs> the. The cover of one that he wrote in like the 70s kind of looks like a choose your own adventure book, which I guess okay. in a way. So, but case, you're, what you're telling me is it's not about Baldur's Gate. Uh, no, I don't think so. Fuck. Sorry. I mean, you could role play through it if you want. Okay. That's up to you. <laughs> he didn't specifically tell you not to do that. Uh, another weird thing that he does is he gives allegedly gives out his home phone number on the That's Alex weird. Jones show. Like he gives a phone number and says that's that's a like landline at his house that you can call if you wanted to talk to him. I mean he's dead now, so don't call him. But um, well, no, maybe don't call him unless you've got a ghost f- might pick up. 
Yeah, unless you've got that Thomas Edison phone that can talk to the dead. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I think that speaks to your point that there is money to be made here. And by, you know, like, De, De Grand Prix has kind of been proven to be false for a lot of the things that he claimed. Like, you know, nobody can put together that he was because he claims to be like the chief arms dealer for the Middle East uh, in the 70s for the government. And he knows all these top level government officials. And he was on this, you know, secret commission for three days after 9-11 to figure out what really happened. And he delivered this report to the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who said, yeah, this is this makes sense. And then distributed 500 copies around all levels of the government yet nobody who allegedly got one of these copies has any idea what he's talking about and nobody seems to know who he is and it's like he says he was a colonel in the army but it was like actually what his service was is he was in the the uh army national guard not in the actual u.s army um and so it's like i don't know he's he's building up this story around the actual facts and then that's what he's selling is that story And, and, it, and I'm sure we kind of looked at this with made money. This little, self-published oh, sorry, book. Keep going. Keep going. What was oh that? no, no, no! That was it. I'm done. I'm done. I know, Go but ahead. I talked over you. Oh, I was just saying it was. You know, he probably made some money because this was like a self-published book. Like his daughter published the book for him. Gotcha. So, you know, it's not like this. They're like they're collecting all the the revenue off the sales of these books, right? There, there is, there is money to be made off this stuff, um, and that's fine. If you enjoy this in a safe and responsible way, um, and you want to spend money reading <laughs> on stuff, that's fine. Uh, but yeah. just know that, like, you know, I mean, it, and we kind of looked at this with Bob Lazar, maybe not less, maybe a little bit less so Bob Lazar, but because um, Bob was always kind of champion for how he never really wanted any money or fame to do with the story. Um. Anyway, when when people like this DeGrand guy say that, they say that, oh, the planes are remote controlled, he's kind of essentially saying like, yeah, you people whose family died on Flight 93, you're lying. Like, what, like that's not what really happened to your family members or something. Or like, that's, you know, your, your family didn't actually die in that plane crash or something like the government went and did it. And it's like, it's the same kind of thing with Barry Jenkins jr. Um, and they're kind of saying like, well, you know, it's when you make that claim, you're kind of making a choice. You're kind of crossing a line. That's really difficult to come back from. And you even kind of saw this with some of the, not to talk about Alex Jones, but he's, he could be an episode in and of himself. Um, he is an episode in and of himself. There's actually a lot of conspiracies about him. Um, that he is Bill Hicks, that, you know, other stuff. Um, but uh, that he kind of did the same thing with the Sandy Hook stuff, right? Where he said it, he kept pushing all the false flag shit. And then he got in like actual fucking trouble. And it's like, you know, he you hurt people when you say stuff like that. Like, so there is money to be made and there is you can go and say weird crazy i mean infamy is a form of being famous so some people are like you know what i'll fucking take it 
I'll be infamous. Like, you know, <laughs> I can work around that. I don't yeah. give a shit if a th- like they're essentially saying, like, I don't give a shit if 10,000 people hate me as long as 5,000 people like me and enjoy my stuff and buy my book and my supplements. I don't give a shit because those 10,000 people, they're never going to affect me. I'm never going to affect them. But the 5,000 people who buy my books and my supplements are going to make me very rich. Yeah, I think this is like the driving philosophy behind uh, a lot of like controversial media. Yeah. You know, uh, say the most controversial thing. Yeah, say, it is. You know, and you tap into a, a group of people who are willing to believe that and support it. And, you know, it, it can be very lucrative, uh, even though it can also be damaging to a lot of things. Look at like Skip Bayless and fucking Stephen A. Smith to bring sports references. Those guys' entire personalities are just saying the most outrageous, stupid, fucking first take shit about sports. And that's how they make their money. Because for some reason, people still want to tune in and watch those blowhards fucking jerk each other off, even though I know they don't have a show together anymore. Yeah. Um, but they just want to watch them say the most ridiculous, stupid shit. I mean, that's a lot of sport pundits. Um, nowadays, you know, RIP Stuart Scott, you know, the, probably the last generation of like when ESPN was actually fucking like watchable and cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith are probably are really actually good examples of this, I think, because they're clowns. They're complete clowns. Yeah. I mean, it, and they don't give a shit. They don't give a fuck how many people hate them because to them, it's like all publicity, all public, any publicity is good publicity, yeah, right? Yeah, true. Bad publicity is good publicity. Uh, anytime Skip Bayless can be like, well, LeBron James missed a shot. And this is coming from a Chicago fan, okay? Like, you know, and if I'm sticking up for LeBron James in some way, you got to know I really hate the guy who's ta- talking shit about LeBron James. Um, yeah. Oh God, and he's so fucking old, and he still wears like Jordans, like he's like a young man. It's like, ugh. Well, and you know, no, that's why he dresses that way. Like Skip and and Stephen A, they don't ever have to answer for their bad takes, right? That's the other part. Nobody ever it. goes to them and is like, "Hey, you said this thing six months ago, and you were totally wrong about it, and your take looks like shit now." And it, like, I think that. Truthers occupy the same space ultimately, right? Like there's no penalty for saying something outrageous. There's no there's no accountability. And I'm not saying that there should be. I'm not saying that they should be punished, but you know, there's no there's no risk. Right. It's not like you're going to be It's kind of like when 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 you know, and I keep harping on Alex Jones and it's fine if you like Alex Jones's stuff. I don't really give a shit. I think he's a uh... I think he's a very much a living meme. Yeah, that's very fair. Everything he does or says is entertaining and meme worthy in every way. But, you know, like his first and second appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast are pretty legendary. And for good reason, because I mean, he just he just does so much outrageous shit on both those episodes. (laughs) Yeah. But when Joe keeps trying to press him. What does he do? He's so he like he's amazing. He's like a politician. It's like, well, I can't talk about that. Well, I I can't give up my sources on that, Joe. Yeah. You know, I can't talk about that. You know, I'm good. You know, I'm good for my sources. You know, the guys I know. I talk to the guys I know. Yeah. 
It's like, okay, well, listen, it's like, yeah, okay, all right. And it, so when we're talking about stuff that has no factual basis in real life, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's like arguing about science fiction because there's no, maybe science fiction, but fantasy or fucking like anything. It's just. There's just no rules. It's like an improv argument. It's it's no rules. You can make up anything. It's like when we when you and I are playing characters yeah. in improv, and your character can just pull something out of a hat and say like, "Well, you you fucking you did this. You fucking ate all the you ate all my honey." <laughs> and I, and then I was go, "Yeah, well, I was going through a Winnie the Pooh phase." And you were like, "Yeah, well, you weren't wearing any fucking pants back then, and you freaked out a lot of people." <laughs> yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, well, I was addicted to honey." And it's like you can just keep pulling shit out of anywhere. And it doesn't have to have a basis in any kind of reality yeah. because you never have to answer for it. Yeah. You know? So if you can keep, if your whole argument is, well, the government, which is much more powerful and is like omnipotent and is all powerful, controls it. And if people go, well, then how did that happen? You just go, well, the government, they had control of that as well. Yeah. And all you have to do is make one little callback or make one little connection, just like in improv. You know, and it's like maybe maybe earlier in the scene, my character mentioned honey in some capacity, you know, and it's like that that one little callback or that one little thing is just that's all you need to make the connection to get people. That's how we get to where you don't really have to answer. I go, you're still using you're still eating honey. And you go, no, I'm not. Look at me. I'm wearing pants. And I'm like, those are painted (laughs) on. I can see your dick. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, obviously, yes, bunk funkers, we immediately go into a scene where one of our characters has had sex with a ghost. <laughs> yes, that is a trope. Or, that we or got jerked do. off by a ghost, more likely. What got jerked off by a ghost, more likely. That's right. That's right. Uh, excuse me. We Ghosts in our scenes, in our comedy, we're highbrow. Jerk, ghosts only give us over the pants hand jobs, okay? Usually while you're asleep. This isn't an inside job, it's an outside job. <laughs> yeah. And out that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the outside job of 9/11, okay? How many fucking hand jobs were going on? Thanks. Thanks Stephen A. Um LeBron! LeBron James! <laughs> Otherwise, LeBron, you're... Uh, oh, you're getting Stephen A. really mad. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I don't know, Andy. I think we've come full circle here. I think we've uh, we've started making handjob jokes about uh, the outside job of 9-11 you know was it a blow job a hand job so i think it's maybe time to get to our verdicts before we just keep spiraling yeah we i mean you know bunk funkers we didn't like dive deep in this discussion to every single one of the uh hypotheses we brought up in the research but i think we kind of gave our counterpoints there um based on the research so i think it makes sense that after a discussion about you know, philosophically, we could get to our verdicts. I mean, if you want to discuss certain hypotheses that are itch, you're itching to discuss, I mean, let me know. Uh, we can we can talk. About I mean, 
I no, but, I don't I don't think so. I mean, it's like a lot of them are based on just speculation. Um, you know, maybe right. the most speculative thing in the whole bunch is is Flight 93 because there's so much more weird kind of evidence in Flight 93 because there were so many more phone calls and stuff that got recorded that people can point back yeah. to. Um, and it's like nobody really knows exactly what happened at the end of the flight. Like it seems it seems from the cockpit recordings that, you know, the passengers were about to break in to the cockpit or maybe they did break into the cockpit. And that's when the hijackers decided to crash the plane. Um, but some people think that the 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 uh, the passengers took over the plane and then crashed it uh, because the hijackers were, you know, had weapons or had a bomb on the plane and who knows, maybe they did make, you know, they pulled like a Bojinka thing and made a bomb in the bathroom and blew it up. Uh, and that caused the plane to crash. Nobody really knows. Uh, that's one of the more speculative things, but ah, it just doesn't. There's evidence for stuff like that. There's not evidence for their, well, there's not really that much evidence for that other than, you know, speculation, but it's so much even more wildly speculative to say, well, it was shot down by a missile or some mysterious white jet in the area. Yeah. That's all I'll say about flight 93. Oh, it's a good point to bring up. I mean, I think there's definitely like, there definitely is like, and again, a lot of these are just like, this is the hypothesis. This is what happened. It's, it's the best guess, but it's kind of about what happened on on these on this and i guess day. it's kind of like does it matter if the passengers yeah. regained control or didn't regain control or a bomb went off that was detonated by the the hijackers like does any of that stuff really matter at the end of the day because the end result even in those scenarios is the same that the plane crashed yeah um you know the only thing that really matters is like if you're on this inside job angle it's it's like well then maybe that plane was purposefully destroyed but i don't think that the evidence matches that either you know then you know right. i don't think that i don't think that really something that would change the whole story completely there's evidence for it i mean i think that even if the details are not totally accurate for the story that we have it still ends up in the same result there wasn't a result right. changing omission or something and that's and that's and when and we kind of have talked about that as well again is that I think the building truthers kind of take away from the argument of the inside job truthers, which I think is a little bit more speculative and philosophical and kind of like includes your feelings on the u s intervention in the Middle East and the u s um response to nine eleven yeah. right so but I think we both um and, 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 and I yeah. think we both agree that those are the if there's anything that we should probably take away from 9-11, those are the things, right? That like, you know, this event, no matter what, it was used to justify two wars, at least so far, uh, increased spying of U.S. citizens and people, domestic people in the United States. Um, you know, some some would even say an erosion of, of liberties, of some sort for the for citizens here and those are the real issues that are facing us now um and just a lot more death yeah yeah very true and i mean um, 
it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. I, I think we both agree. It's like whether the planes were remote controlled or not, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's like the real thing is like, did the government do it or did they, you know, were they willfully ignorant that it was going to happen? Uh, like, did they not stop it when they could have, like they had a good opportunity to stop it and they just purposefully didn't do it? Like, those are the important questions, I think. Yeah. I agree. Um, and, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of, again, then there's a lot of science based on all this. So when you, you say shit about steel and the jet fuel and whatever, it's like, I'm going to believe the guy who's spent most of his life studying steel. <laughs> like if you're the type of guy who's like, I picked this one, I'm really into this one metal. And like, that's what you study for your whole life. And you're like, listen, here's the temperature it melts at. Here's the temperature it gets weak at. I'm going to be like, listen, buddy, I believe you. Okay. <laughs> I get it. You like steel. You watched Wiley Coyote get hit in the head with an Acme anvil. When you were a little kid, and you said, I want to make those. <laughs> listen, you changed your name legally to tongue Sten. I'll believe you. Okay. <laughs> And Tungsten, if you're listening, you know, hey, let us up. know what you thought of this. Send us yeah. an email. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you again. All right, Andy, lay it on the listeners. Um, how should how do you think we should do the the verdicts today? Like building by building, event um, by event, or you just want to like blanket it? I mean, I think we've kind of given away yeah, a little bit about what so. we think. So if you want to just you know, yeah, we're burning the yeah, midnight oil here, bunk we'll, funkers. No, we'll just, no, lie, we'll just blanket it. Like everything we everything sure. we talked about today, uh, these building conspiracies, uh, the Pentagon conspiracies, the Flight ninety three conspiracies. I mean, I've I've got to just go case closed. Uh, to me, I didn't find a lot of this information compelling and. You know, like we said, it's it's almost distracting from some of the real questions um, for some for the things that we talked about today. Uh, you know, I think it's like it's obvious to me that planes smashed into the World Trade Center towers and they collapsed and the horrible destruction wrought by all of that led to other buildings needing to be destroyed and even the collapse of Building 7 and at the Pentagon, a plane I mean, so many people saw it. A plane crashed into the building. Um, and, you know, the the problems with that people have with that, it's just that it was fortuitous. Uh, it hit the right part of the building uh, to minimize the damage, the impact. And then Flight 93, you know, it's like the, the crew, the passengers, they acted way more bravely than I think I ever could in any situation in trying to fight back against people hijacking their plane. And, you know, they ended up paying the ultimate price for uh, a selfless act of of courage. Uh, and I think those are the that's the way I see it. And I am not really compelled by space beams or nukes or or thermite or uh, a cruise missile into the Pentagon or, uh, you know, a jet shooting down Flight 93. I'm not compelled at all by any of that stuff. And. Again, I think there's rational explanations for why that's the case. 
Yeah. Well said, Andy. Um, and I, I echo your statements. I, too, am case wow. closed on this. Uh, I think that these are claims very much in defiance of science. You know, it's a lot of fun to talk about theories and things that, uh, you know, kind of uh, there there doesn't need to be a scientific evidence sort of angle or there doesn't, you know, like when we talk about ghosts or when we talk about fucking uh, various UFO topics, you know. Um, the Flatwoods Monster. Uh, but, but this is the Flatwoods Monster. Love cryptids. You know, uh, but but this one is one where the, the skeptics answer just flat out denounces every single one of these claims, I think, um, with, you know, plenty of evidence to back it up. Um, and, 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 yeah, and I mean, I think that's it. That's my succinct kind of end statement on that. I thought for sure you were going to be like plausible molecule or something. No. Plausible quark. No, I, I mean, I thought you'd leave the wheel. I, I never really knew the main theory of nine uh, eleven. Like, I didn't know that it's that uh, plane. I mean, I knew that fucking planes hit the towers. <laughs> but I, I in my mind i was like oh yeah planes hit towers and then uh building fall down go boom like i I didn't know that it was planes hit the towers the jet fuel caused a fire rage the raging fire fucking burnt the fucking steel beams that were already overloaded and then it free fall pancaked into the ground and it, it's like i didn't know all those steps happened and so as soon as i put all that as soon as they put all that together you're like ah oh, shit yeah that's what happens because it's like when if all you know is like oh planes hit tower tower go boom fall down, and then they say well what if it's not plane hit tower what if it bomb hit tower bomb go boom, uh tower go boom and then you're kind of like no me make boom boom in my pants <laughs> oh That's no I made a boom sense. boom <laughs> oh me make boom boom because uh, you know it's it's tantalizing for people who don't know the official story it's like well yeah maybe there was a fucking it does it did look like a controlled demolition i don't know any yeah. better <laughs> uh so, i have to i have to empathize a little bit too with truthers uh for a second and just say that you are right art it did take a long time for some of this stuff to eventually be synthesized into working information and so if you walked away from the events of 9-11 with lots of questions, it took a long time to get any kind of an answer about anything uh, on this. So, you know, I can see why if if you had any kind of a platform and you were questioning these things that you maybe have to start piecing it together yourself just to try to make sense of it. Um, but like we kept saying over and over again, you know, at some point you have to be able to be affected by new information when it's actually available. Right. Right, right, right. Um, and, um, oh God, I keep losing my train of thought. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's how, uh, a lot of people didn't even know building seven happened. A lot of people, myself included. I didn't fucking know. Yeah. I don't, I didn't have any, I mean, I don't know anything about Building 7 before we embarked on this project. I didn't know a single I mean, thing it, about it. It just, I mean, if I heard about it before, like, it's totally out of my mind. 
so I can understand. And building seven took forever for them yeah. to get an explanation. I mean, almost like what? Like seven years. Seven yeah. years? So, oh, that's a, that's that's a weird coincidence. Um, building seven took seven years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So You're like, seeing it, connections it, and everything. It's like, it's totally like. Pentagon. It's, it, if, well, like, let's, uh, Pentagon. Uh Let's say we're back in 2007 and we don't fucking know. Well, I guess they kind of put out a hypothesis. FEMA put one out eight months after, but it was like, it's they kind of just said like, oh, it fell down due to fire. And people were like, wait a minute. Steel buildings that are fireproof don't fall down due to fire. Right. That's never happened before. So if we were sitting there, let's say this podcast was happening in 2001 and we were pioneers in the podcast zone. Um we probably would have said like plausible. I mean, there's a lot of like sus stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know the fucking official story, it's like, hmm, this place was the fucking home to the Secret Service, the CIA, all this other shit, Department of Defense, and they burned it down. Yeah. It's like, huh. Yeah, we have we have the nice benefit right now of uh two decades worth of of hindsight and all the extensive research that's been done into this topic to help inform our verdicts now but yeah if we were yeah. if we were plucky young podcasters back at the time i agree with you i think the verdicts would be a lot different yeah i mean that's why you have people like architects and engineers for 9-11 truth coming out and saying stuff but it's like well these guys are architects and engineers it's like they know their stuff you know i don't have anything else the government isn't giving us an answer yeah. like we just have this femur report that said uh fire burned the thing down and that's never happened before, really. And uh, so, you know, I think it would totally change the verdicts. But yeah, absolutely. Um, and and to this day, I think a lot of people still are very sus on Building 7. Um, and I know I think it can seem very... Um, it, I mean, it is. It's like, okay, the building moved like the support beams move four inches and it's like well you don't cut corners when you build a building so four inches is a lot yeah (laughs) hey trust me four inches is a lot okay (laughs) a hard four inches is plenty (laughs) you don't need more than four inches you don't need more than four inches okay four four inches will get the job done Okay, whether you're building a building or trying to pleasure someone sexually, okay? They're not they're not mutually exclusive and they might not be related. Some of us have had our Okay, it's about what you do with those four. Some inches. of us have had our bolts sheared off too, and that's fine. <laughs> Doesn't change a thing. To all the Frankensteins <laughs> who are listening to this podcast who have had their bolts sheared off by an angry fire-wielding mob. You know what? We're thinking about you, and we're dedicating this episode to you. This <laughs> goes out to all the Frankenstein's monsters out there. Yeah. Um. Um. But but yeah, you know, it's like you read that, and you're like, oh man, what the? I mean, what the fuck are you talking about? Four fucking inches. It burned off this thing. This one little support column fell down, and it's like, well, you know, it was a perfect disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like. Well, and we don't know. It's like, what if what if the tolerance had been five inches? What if it had been six inches? Would it would that have changed anything? I don't know. You know, would it right. just have kept burning? Yeah. 
I mean, it's like fires at the World Trade Center site burned until December. I mean, who knows how long fires inside Building 7 could have kept going while, you know, they're desperately trying to, while all of New York's emergency personnel are like desperately trying to dig people, human beings, out of the wreckage of these collapsed towers. Uh, you know, yes. I don't think that the the primary objective was like, oh, let's put out fires in this empty building. Right. And, and I mean, and building seven, I think suffers the most because it is the most hypothetical. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's, we don't believe it. It's to say that like, they're really, like they said, it, they didn't have the, the debris wasn't really marked in the same way the twin towers were the, uh, they just didn't have a lot of the wreckage to look at. So they had to use a lot of like, uh, other modeling and stuff, computer simulations, modeling and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, it's a good point too, to say that like this happened well after the, the towers had collapsed and like, man, which is also very sad. And and Manhattan has been covered in this dense coat of, of debris that's come from the collapse of the towers um, you know, there weren't that many people in Manhattan to, at the time, to like objectively observe how Building Seven collapsed. You know, right? And that that just helps. I mean, I think that's just another thing that helps. You know, stoke alternative theories is that there just weren't that many people to even see it, to even observe it. So. There have to be more best guesses than with the towers themselves. Um, well, anyway, <laughs> those were <Yeah>. our verdicts. <laughs> Do you remember what they were uh, now? <laughs> yeah. Bugfuckers, let us know what you think. Use uh, the hashtag. Uh, I don't know. Fire not hot enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Or hashtag fire bad. Yeah. In, uh, in honor bad. of all our Frankenstein monsters listening. That's, I like that. We are dedicating this to all of our Frankenstein listeners. And I know it's Frankenstein's monster. Get over it, you nerds. Friggin' eggheads. <laughs> eggheads. I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I'm going to say Frankenstein. I'm going to say Frankenberry, the way it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, you'll get your day in court, Count Chocula. My uncle's Frank and You'll get Barry. your episode. <laughs> God. Um, all right. Those were our verdicts. So you can uh, email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com. Tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at mrbunkerpod. Follow us on Twitch at Mr. Bunker Pie. We've been doing some more streams. We've been having yeah, some come fun. Watch, come watch uh, Art Play Warhammer. That's right. And hang out with Andy yeah. in the chat. Uh, until he has to go leave and eat, go eat hamburgers. <laughs> Which happens every time. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's uh, I'm on a, I'm on a schedule. Um, I got to eat hamburgers every two hours. <laughs> he'll gladly, he'll gladly pay you Monday for his hamburger on Sunday. Um, and Look us up on YouTube by YouTube searching Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast and um, sub to us on there. There's a couple of vids up there. So Submit um, to us, listeners. I th- oh, wait, you mean subscribe. <laughs> submit to our will. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Don't submit to our wills. 
Um, poof, Andy, we did it. <laughs> we ran the gauntlet. We investigated 9-11. And we did a pretty okay job of it. Next week, 3-11. <laughs> We're coming for you. <laughs> We're going to find out if, if Amber really is the color of your energy. <laughs> Um, Andy, do you have any last words you want to say uh, before we get out of here? No, uh, I'll just say, Bunk Funkers, thanks for being on this journey with us. It's been a wild ride. Wow. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Bunk Funkers, and thank you for all your support. We love ya. Well, anyway, for not the titular Mr. Bunker, but for my crepuscular. Ooh, yeah. I never heard that word before, but it sounds like it applies to me. Corpuscular? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably right. Uh, co-host Andy Hart, I'm Art Stone saying that was the whole enchilada. Yummy! podcast fans want to get weird with us come check out the mad scientist podcast we are a weekly show that looks at the history philosophy and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions did the government really pay for a psychic spy program yes is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing yes can a roller coaster really kill you Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.